1: This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Let me assure you what you will not hear on the next four hours of this show. You will not hear me speculating on Vladimir Putin's health based on video in something that's in in another continent that I'm watching for 30 seconds. Have you seen these videos? Oh, people say, oh, Vladimir Putin, he's definitely got cancer. Oh, no, 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 Vladimir Putin, he's definitely on some sort of steroid. Oh, Vladimir Putin, you could tell just by looking at him. He's got a blanket on. He's got Alzheimer's. You will not hear any speculation of Vladimir Putin's health or any world leader's health for the next four hours. Uh, do you know who James Cromwell is? Uh, maybe you've seen this story. Maybe you haven't. But uh, the, it's it's all over the place, not just Locally, but nationally, James Cromwell is a terrific actor. Uh, He is really one of my favorites. I don't know anything about him as a person, but uh, I will tell you, I've enjoyed him in film after film. You know, he we weren't able to find any audio of him, but you remember him from Babe. That's probably his most famous role uh, and the famous line at the end where he says, that'll do pig. That'll do. And of course, those of us that are Star Trek fans can't forget his incredible turn as Zephyrm Cochran in the movie Star Trek First Contact, the discoverer of Warp Drive. And uh, he's great in that. And I believe he actually brought back that role or uh, re- revised that role for. Um the series Star Trek Enterprise, he's done a lot of great things. He's on a show called Succession, which I have not seen, but I'm told is terrific. He's done a lot of great roles over the years. I'm a big fan of him as an actor. And I had no idea until this week that he was such a prominent animal rights activist. And I say more power to you. I uh, I am an animal lover myself, very vocal about animal rights. You hear when we do the commendations, the denunciations, how often that involves animals. I'm an animal person. I will tell you, uh, unlike James Cromwell, who's apparently a vegan, I do eat animal products. Now, I do feel guilty about it, but uh, I'll tell you, I am a big seafood person. I do eat eggs, and on more than one occasion, I have eaten cheese and other dairy products. But... Uh, I applaud people that can commit to the full lifestyle of being a vegan. I Maybe one day that'll be me, but at, at this point in my life, that's not something I'm ready to do. So James Crom- <laughs> I don't mean to laugh because he was trying to make a serious point, and he's an 82-year-old guy, and I applaud anybody at any age that's this active, but especially somebody that's an octogenarian, and I just don't get this. So James Cromwell glued his his hand to the counter of a Starbucks in New York City on Tuesday in protest uh, because the company charges more for plant-based milk alternatives. Now, a couple of things here. One, um, I can't help but think that if you have a, a problem with what Starbucks is doing, in terms of charging more for soy milk or oat milk, I don't go to Starbucks. I don't know what other kind of milk alternatives they use. If you have a problem with Starbucks charging more for that, why don't you go to another coffee shop? Why don't you go to another place that doesn't charge more for soy milk? That's number one. Uh, Number two, there's a simple way to avoid paying more for soy milk or oat milk than dairy milk. You could just get your coffee black, which is what I do. I have no idea what they ch- charge for uh, a- a milk or soy milk or oat milk. That's, that's, I just get my coffee black. That's because it's my preference, not because of the damage to the animals. Three, um, you have to recognize, and I know there are differences with how soy milk is made versus oat milk versus cashew milk. So I know this is a broad simplification here. It costs a lot of money and it costs a lot of water to make soy milk and almond milk. I mean, these are not inexpensive products to produce. So you have to think that it's going to cost you a couple of cents more to get a soy venti latte as opposed to a conventional venti latte, right? That's what people get at Starbucks, venti lattes. I'm not into the whole Starbucks culture. I got to tell you. I, I have been to Starbucks before. I don't think I've purchased anything from there in years. My wife likes it, so I've gone in there with her. Uh, sometimes when you're walking around Manhattan and you really need a place to use a restroom, Starbucks is very good with that. Uh, I give them a lot of credit for that. But uh, it's not not my st- not my scene. It's not my style. Not my thing. But I know a lot of people that love it. They live for it. And My, my father and stepmother, they love Starbucks. They're all about Starbucks. Additionally, I forget what number we're up to. These are the perils of not relying on a a prepared script. Do you really think the best way, even if let's say you don't want to just take your business elsewhere and at the same time sign a petition advocating for um, Starbucks to do the right thing in terms of not charging more for dairy alternatives, do you think the best way to bring attention to this, if that's your goal, and let's assume that it is, Is to glue yourself to a counter. I I have to think one. That it's so uncomfortable. Two. The people in that particular store. They don't. They don't have anything to do with making. Dairy price policy. I mean why not go to Seattle. Why not go to uh, Howard Schultz's office. And glue yourself to Howard Schultz's doorknob. Now there's a guy that can make a decision right away. That see that would have been something. If he somehow got a meeting with Howard Schultz and glued himself to Howard Schultz's desk, what is the manager of some Manhattan Starbucks going to do to change policy? lastly, doesn't this sound so incredibly uncomfortable to have to glue yourself to a a coffee counter? If anything, you know, we've all seen these sit-ins that people do as a protest. I could understand that. You go sit in somewhere, you refuse to leave, and that's your act of civil disobedience. You don't leave until the police come and arrest you. But why would you want to glue yourself to something? I have to think this is one of the – I mean, look, I guess it is effective because we're all talking about this now. But I have to think this is one of the least effective means of protesting Starbucks pricing policies is to glue yourself to the Starbucks counter. I, what do you think? 800-848-WABC. That's 800 848 Now, if the goal was to get attention for this, it has worked. Because PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, they posted live video of this on social media showing James Cromwell um, voicing his concerns while wearing a Free the Animals t-shirt. So um, he said in this video, and I'm sorry we don't have the audio, but he said in this video, there there's no reason for it except greed. Will you stop charging more for vegan milk? When will you stop raking in huge profits while customers, animals, and the environment suffer? A uh, representative for – it reminds me of that uh, on Curb Your Enthusiasm this past season, the episode with Woody Harrelson where he's trying to cream shame everybody – I really, I really do think that if you want somebody to change their behavior, which in this case, James Cromwell not only wants you, the consumer, to change your behavior by not consuming dairy, but he wants Starbucks to change their behavior by not charging more for alternatives to dairy. I really don't think that making people, uh, guilt-tripping people into this is the way to do it. I think education is great. I think advocacy is great, but making people feel like garbage because they like to have a drop of cream in their coffee, I don't think that's a great way to get people to change their behavior. If anything, I find it makes people dig in more and change their behavior and and not change their behavior, but PETA has always been one for these broad Protests that uh, grab attention and grab headlines. So a representative for Starbucks did not immediately respond to multiple phone calls and emails. Uh, Cromwell said Starbucks is guilty of enforcing, quote, a senseless upcharge against customers seeking a a milk alternative. Well, first of all, Starbucks should have issued a statement. They should have said why they charge more because thirteen thousand people in counting have signed this petition against vegan milk. They should have said, look, it costs us more to use the soy milk. That's why we're that's why we're doing it. Um, or it's tougher to get with the supply chain crisis or whatever, whatever explanation they should have offered some explanation to the people that signed this petition. I just question whether this is really the best way to go about it. I, I'm a Sopranos fan, as you know, and I recently rewatched the series with my wife who had never seen it. And there's one episode towards the end of the series and I where where two characters that are involved with the mob in North Jersey are trying to basically shake down a Starbucks. I don't know if they call it Starbucks on the show. In fact, I think they don't. But um, basically, the manager is unshakedownable because he has nothing to do with, with, with expenditures. That's all micromanaged by Seattle somewhere. He says, look, if, if every coffee bean is not accounted for, uh, Seattle's just going to get rid of me and bring someone else in. So I really think that is true. These, if they were, If this was a small business, that's one thing. But this is a giant multinational corporation, and the people at this Starbucks in Manhattan, they have nothing to do with this. Now, on the one hand, I do applaud the fact that every single channel around the country is now carrying this James Cromwell story. And it's leading me to think, well, can I come up with a clever publicity idea like this to, um, you know, I don't know. Maybe I can glue myself to – is there a Coca-Cola shop? I'll glue myself to a Coca-Cola machine until they bring back Tab, right? Because Coca-Cola owns Tab. They own the rights to it. They, they've stopped manufacturing it a year and a half ago. Maybe I can do that. Glue myself to a Coca-Cola machine. You could what? chain yourself to a Coke truck. See, that's as an good, idea. As delivering the Coke. Well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to get dragged by the Coke truck. And I'm just thinking, one, and I guess this is why James Cromwell's a big, b- better man than me. One, I really don't want to be glued to a Coca-Cola truck or a machine. Three, you know, I can't help but think that, It would take a lot of time before anyone cared if I was glued to a Coca-Cola machine. And I just have, I mean, I do have kind of other things to do. And how do you get yourself off of that? Like, how do you unglue yourself? You know, that's such a good question you ask, Matt Blaze. And uh, I did research that because it was not clear, based on most of the articles, how James Cromwell got unglued. So police eventually arrived at the scene... And Cromwell used a knife to detach his hand from the countertop so that he would not be arrested. So um Starbucks temporarily shut down the location. That's kind of what we were hoping for. One of the protesters said of the closure, you know, I, again, I just, I recognize what he's trying to do here. And again, I'm a fan of James Cromwell's work and I applaud, you know, look, the guy's been a vegan for 50 years at a time when it was very tough to be a vegan. And, I guess that's admirable, but I'm just thinking of the inconvenience to the customers who probably just wanted a cup of coffee. They're going about their day. They just wanted to run in and get a cup of coffee, and they can't do it because this 82-year-old actor has crazy glued himself to a counter, and then the guy doesn't even get arrested. When it comes time to, um, you know, when it comes time to pay the piper and get arrested and do his part for civil disobedience, he just he takes a knife and sort of unwedges his hand.
0: He totally caved when he's supposed to stay there.
1: Exactly. And you know what? This is where I think, you know, it pays to be a celebrity. We saw this with Will Smith not getting charged for slapping Chris Rock, whereas the guy that uh, that uh, attacked Dave Chappelle He did get arrested, albeit not charged with a felony. How that guy doesn't get charged with a felony when he's carrying a knife, I don't understand. And that gives you an idea of where some of the DAs are in this country. Then uh, Mike Tyson, the guy that he punches on the airplane, Mike Tyson doesn't get charged doesn't get arrested. Now, I guarantee you. When I do my stunt of crazy gluing myself to a Coca-Cola machine until they bring back Tab or whatever we end up coming up with that requires the least amount of time and will deliver the most amount of publicity and the least amount of discomfiture to me, um, I guarantee you I'm being arrested. See, there's a, there's, a, there's a status quo. There's a hierarchy. The more famous you are, the less likely you are to be arrested. So if you're at James Cromwell level of fame – You can glue yourself to a Starbucks, inconvenience the employees, have the police come and respond to the scene instead of going out and actually arresting people that are doing something bad, and disrupt people that want a cup of coffee and not get arrested. If you're Mike Tyson, you could punch someone in an airplane because they're heckling you. I actually think Tyson was in the right on that one. If you're Will Smith, you can uh, walk up to somebody that makes a joke you don't like and smack them. But if you're Frank Morano and all you want to do is bring back tab for the masses, then forget about it. You're up the creek without a paddle. 800 800-848-9222, 489222. I want to hear your thoughts on this James Cromwell. I don't know what we can call it. Gluegate? Maybe we'll call it Crazy Gluegate. 848 9222 if you want to comment. We got a great show for you coming up. Um, we had uh really worked hard uh, to get Bill O'Reilly on the show today and uh, I spent a lot of time preparing for this interview with Bill O'Reilly and I was really looking forward to it and unfortunately Bill O'Reilly would not be on the show today. Uh, What happened was uh, Bill wanted to pre-tape right before the show, but we were having some problems with the phones, so we weren't able to hook that up. But uh, we are working on facilitating this for Friday morning's show. We're going to talk to him about his new book, which I went to the trouble of reading, and uh, a bunch of other issues in the news. Now, I'll tell you what we are going to do. Much more important than Bill O'Reilly, at least to me, We're going to talk with Brian Van Flandern. This is an interview that I have been preparing for, not for an hour, not for two hours, not for a week. Brian Van Flandern is America's top mixologist. And he's a spirits historian. And we're going to talk booze in about 15 minutes. Very much looking forward to that conversation. And then Tom Devine, who is an attorney and a, a lobbyist and with a group called the Government Accountability Project. He's featured in this new Netflix docu series all about Three Mile Island. So I want to take a look back at Three Mile Island. I got to tell you, I, I thought I knew about Three Mile Island. And then I saw an excerpt of this documentary in the uh, New York Post a few days ago. I was totally unaware of how close the entire East Coast was to a nuclear meltdown. And this could have been – this was bad, but it could have been really bad. And it really gives you some pause when it comes to thinking about nuclear energy in the future. So I'm going to looking forward to that discussion with Tom Devine coming up in the 2 o'clock hour. Mike is in New Hyde Park. Hello, Mike.
2: Frank, I love Cromwell. I mean, you know, Deep Impact, Long Green Mile, et cetera. He is a great actor. He's, I think he even played Washington once. But – he smack dab at the beginning of the baby boomer generation, a.k.a. the hippies. The worst thing, in my opinion, that ever happened to this country. It's over the top. Uh, frankly, Starbucks, they're being merchants. It costs more to produce that kind of milk. And, I, I mean, it's—and unfortunately, he, he's from this generation that is rewarded for being emotionally disturbed. And it actually resonates to this day because they're like children imitate older people. So there are children out in the world right now imitating this guy. And on a side note, I wish Stan from
3: Forest Hills would use some super glue on his lips.
1: (laughs) Well, that's mean, Mike. But thank you. Uh, Philippe informs me that a fan stormed the court of a Minnesota Timberwolves game uh, a few weeks ago and glued themselves to the court as a protest for animal rights. So I guess this is what they do now. I guess this is what the animal rights movement does now. This is maybe what. Keeps me out of the full-fledged animal rights movement, not only the fact that I eat shrimp, but the fact that I am unwilling to glue myself to somewhere. Where would you glue yourself to? 800-848-9222. Rosemary is in Westchester. Hello, Rosemary.
4: Oh, thank you, Frank. I'd like to be, I'll try to be as quick as possible. A couple of things. His celebrity and his age made him not be arrested. Number two, I believe, ha- who started Starbucks and sold it? Howard somebody.
1: I can't think of his Right, I mentioned name. Howard Schultz. He didn't start it, but he is the CEO, yeah, yeah, yes. yeah.
4: Well, He came back briefly um, as chairman, and I saw a tiny column in the Post, in the business section, that he was going to address that. Maybe it's not coming fast enough, and it was in other franchises. Soy and oat milk would be the same price and third does anybody remember him as stretch cunningham cromwell and um his archie's friend and all in the family i believe oh oh you stretch know i'd cunningham. forgotten that
1: he was on archie's place
4: you're right i just remembered that out of nowhere that's how my crazy mind that's works. great Thank i had forgotten <laughs> that
1: rosemary great points all 800 that's 1-800-848-WABC i got a uh, SMS text message here from our resident program observer, O.B. Murray. I don't know if you people understand how big of a deal that O.B. Murray listens to the show on a regular basis. O.B. Murray is he is one of the movers and shakers in this city, in the state and in this country. Right. So you mentioned Donald Trump. He can send you a photo of him and Donald Trump. You mentioned Ed Koch. I send you a photo of him and Ed Koch. He knows everybody. He's incredibly well connected. And I'll add that the from what I understand, the last time we had lunch, which I think was about four years ago, he paid. And as I recall, I had three glasses of wine at that lunch. So anybody that's gonna it's gonna buy lunch, number one, and include three glasses of wine in that lunch, I don't remember the level of dairy products consumed at that particular lunch um is okay in my book. So he says he wants to have less cow's milk sold and consumed. Higher prices equals fewer people order them as substitutions for milk. I get that. I get that. So is that where we are? A cow's milk tax? Is he asking Starbucks to implement a cow's milk tax? You know, my uh, my cousin Deanna saw my father and stepmother at uh, Starbucks yesterday. And apparently they went to Starbucks. And they're all into this Starbucks culture. They went to Starbucks. And they were sitting, and I. This is all secondhand. I did not eyewitness this. They were sitting outside in folding chairs, and I can't help but wonder if maybe it would have been good publicity for this show if they were going to be there anyway. If they would have glued themselves to something while they were sitting there, wouldn't that have been something? 800-848-9222. Joe is in New Jersey. Hello, Joe. How are you? Um, I was just. First of all. Uh, was there any outcome uh, from this whole stunt? Yeah, well, that's a great Nothing. question. So no. So he. A lot of people paid attention to it. They video streamed. They live streamed the whole thing on social media. But the police came, and then James Cromwell left. But no, Starbucks right. is still charging more for uh, so dairy. Be in the news
5: and then go nowhere.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess. Look, just to play devil's advocate, I guess um the fact we wouldn't be talking about this right now if james cromwell didn't do this and i guess maybe it did serve his purpose of bringing more attention to the dairy disparity i guess and also is what what was his
6: uh, point that starbucks is being like anti vegans i mean starbucks yeah. is the most
3: liberal organization in new jersey
1: yeah i mean I yes mean, there are people, uh, he's you know essentially I mean? saying that um um you know that this is just greed on the part of Starbucks that that uh they're punishing I mean, the Starbucks come on Starbucks yeah. is, is you
4: know what I mean they're all the blue here people work there you know what I mean it's not well i think not
1: you, like that. i look i think you get a lot of uh people of varying political persuasions that do go to Starbucks uh, some people just like the coffee but um what uh, james cromwell said was my friends at PETA and i are calling on Starbucks to stop punishing kind and environmentally conscious customers for choosing plant milks. Well, you know what? Um, You remember, I I mean, I don't want to compare the movement to punish dairy consumers to the movement for civil rights in the Jim Crow era South, but do you remember what uh, Martin Luther King and others did in the South during the Jim Crow era when blacks were forced to ride in the back of the bus? What did black consumers do? They stopped taking the bus. the bus companies all over the South until they change their ways. Now, why doesn't James Cromwell and the people that are gluing themselves to Timberwolves games, why don't they lead themselves, why don't they lead a boycott of Starbucks or better yet, start a coffee shop that charges less for soy uh, and uh, non-dairy alternatives to milk, Right. Isn't that the solution? You know, Curtis is a guy that really likes paying cash for things. Curtis is basically perpetually stuck in 1979. So um, Curtis and I were at the Ferryhawks game the other day. And he said, well, why, why do they only take uh, credit cards? Why don't they take cash? And um, I, I said, Curtis, I, I, I don't know. Again, I think you're confusing me with our boss, the owner of the team, John Katzmatin. Curtis loves to take all of his complaints, all of his concerns to me. He says, why why aren't they playing the female? We got the female. Why don't they play her? I said, Curtis, I, I think, you know, again, I like Edgardo Alfonso, but he doesn't consult with me about managerial decisions. I think you'd have to talk to him. But anyway, so Curtis was very upset that they don't take cash at the ballpark. Maybe Curtis should glue himself to the cash register there. Maybe <laughs> that would help. I mean, I th- I think that certainly would bring a lot of attention to it. But you know, if Curtis does it, he people are so accustomed to weird Curtis stump stunts that I don't even know if it's news anymore. People would just say, "Oh, that's just Curtis being Curtis." Uh, you know, uh, it's it's oh, it's Thursday. It's Thursday. Curtis is just this is his day to glue himself to things. How do you like that? Charlie is in Hell's Kitchen. Hello, Charlie. Hey, Frank.
5: I wanted to say, well, the other caller was right. James Cromwell's from the Baby Boom generation, so that—that's a lot of it. His ego and his antics that they've done destructive things. But also, the thing that annoys me is he says this is corporate greed. That really annoys me because it reflects a, a lack of maturity that a lot of people have. We live in a capitalist society. Now, I don't agree with Starbucks politics. I don't agree with Howard Schultz politics. I think you know that about me. But they're all in business to make money. I mean, John Katz-McTiddy is in business to make money in this radio station. That's how he's able to provide you and pay you the salary that you make. And, 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 and we're all in capitals. Uh, society that we live in and we're all trying to make money, it doesn't mean we're greedy or are pe- bad people. And I just, I think that's horrible. Uh,
1: you know, I, I, thank you, Charlie. I, I think you're largely correct. I appreciate the call. Here's the one difference. Starbucks, as I understand it, is a publicly traded company. Red Apple, Red Apple, which is the parent company of the Ferry Hawks, of uh, this radio station, of United Metro Energy, of Christidis, a bunch of companies, is not publicly traded. As I understand it, it's privately held. So John does not have any fiduciary responsibility to his shareholders. John can do whatever he wants, um, which is great. But Starbucks does have a responsibility to its shareholders to maximize profits, if they are publicly traded. I believe they are, lest I uh, remember hearing about that. All right. I want to talk booze. Let's, enough of this dairy stuff. Let's talk booze. But I want to squeeze in at least one or two more calls here. Neil has been patiently holding. Hello there, Neil.
7: Frank, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous that a guy goes into a, a store for coffee, and let's face it, the, all the price to begin with, And he's he's demanding he doesn't like if you pay a few pennies more for the milk. He's a moron. Let me go somewhere else for his coffee. And he he glued himself to the bar. I hope they they sue him for the lost revenue and for any damage to the bar, because he would certainly deserve that. And I think you should also
8: glue yourself to your ping pong table, (laughs) which wouldn't be a bad idea. And also, the last thing I'll say, for I'm stunned that fairy hawks don't take cash. I never heard of something like that before.
1: Uh, again, at least that's what Curtis said. I mean, I paid with a credit card, but it was because I didn't have any cash on me. I don't know if uh, if that's a rule. Um, lastly, let me say hello to Michael in Manhattan. Hello, Michael.
5: A couple of things, uh, and then I'll get to Curtis. The almond milk in our restaurant, the soy milk, we're charging an extra 50 cents for that because the prices you. have gone so no how dairy me. <laughs> uh, and don't and don't milk that for all it's worth okay um yeah that's what we're we're charged we're charged much well, more no, no, the, well that's uh, what i was no saying the, the, yeah i
1: mean especially with the supply chain crisis i would think that's the case michael thank you for the call let avery know what restaurant you're at so that we can all glue ourselves to it to protest what your restaurant is doing in terms of uh, charging people more. All right. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to this discussion. We're going to talk booze with America's top mixologist. Straight ahead. an exciting time to be alive as we chronicled um last week right now we are eyewitness to one of the most exciting moments in world history um right now those of us that occasionally like to frequent cocktail establishments not to mention those of us that more than occasionally like to frequent cocktail establishments we have a ringside seat for the comeback of the martini Everyone is talking about it. Everywhere you go, folks are sharing martini stories. They're sharing theories as to where the martini went for all these years, why it's come back, what their martini methods include. And somebody that has been a warrior in the battle for martini supremacy has been Brian Van Flandern. He is America's Top mixologist. He's a spirits historian and an award-winning cocktail book author. And he is kind enough to join us this morning on the radio. Hello there, Brian.
8: Top of the morning to
1: you. <laughs> uh, so, Brian, the number one question I got from folks when I um, when I would mention that I was going to have you on today is folks asking me what the difference is between a mixologist and a bartender. So I'll I'll ask you that. Question first, what is the difference between a mixologist and a bartender?
8: Well, you know, for 20 years, I thought uh, a mixologist was a bartender with a self-inflated ego. (laughs) But uh, we've seen, though, really uh, since the late, late 90s, early 2000s, that the best mixologists or the best bartenders in the world are emulating the great chefs or they're sourcing local ingredients, freshest ingredients possible, they're doing spirit education to find the highest quality spirits. They're using flavor profiling to balance the acids and sugars and create original cocktails and recreate the classics. to taste spot on perfect every time. It's uh, an emerging culinary art form. And uh, the term mixologist has kind of fallen into favor and has become the, the. So I always tell the average person, the basic difference is a mixologist is to a bartender as a chef is to a cook. I like it. And we're in. Yeah, yeah.
9: That's it.
1: I like it. And if people want to check out your website, by the way, they can do so at mymixologist.com. There's a a ton of great stuff on there. What makes you America's top mixologist? Has that been. Is that self proclaimed or were you actually awarded that designation somewhere?
8: No, I was. uh, I did a little stint uh, on the Food Network. I've done a a lot of different projects with them. And uh, one of their one of their uh, uh producers or whatever was putting putting up the sign and said, Hey, we've got America's top mixologist. But I I was formerly ranked number two in the world. I, I used to compete internationally, so uh I, I somebody somebody else gave me the title and I, I use it in all my promotional material. So
3: <laughs> Well who was the person
1: that finished number one in the world?
8: Well, he was uh, an Australian who was living in New York, but he's, uh, he's since moved on, and I, I that was then, and, and there's been a lot of competition since then. So,
1: So if we wanted to be technical, I guess we should properly refer to you as the world's second greatest mixologist.
8: <laughs> well, now I can use that in my promotional material, say Frank said I was number, uh, <laughs> number two in the world.
1: Um, all right. Well, so w- tell me about the story with the martini. I've seen now a whole bunch of articles all saying that the martini is in the midst of a comeback. Is this just media hype or is this real? Did the martini really see a wane in its popularity? And is it now seeing a resurgence? What's your take?
8: Yeah, well first of all for those of us in the know it has been it's been coming back strong for a while now but uh, in very recent months uh in the last year or two we're seeing a huge resurgence in the mainstream in the middle of America people are really getting turned on to it and there's and there's a number of different factors uh that have gone into resurging uh one of course this shows television shows like Mad Men or, uh, you know, Casino Royale or even American Psycho, people see people romanticizing the, the martini and that's exciting. But we're also seeing this huge flood of, uh, of, of videos emerging on TikTok and on YouTube and other social media platforms. And we're seeing a lot of people, uh, of mixologists and bartenders uh, making these cocktails um, and they're making them properly. And and one of the reasons that, the Martini declined for many years. Ironically, is because of Ian Fleming and James Bond. Mm. And, and it, it's weird because it's he's often credited for popularizing the Martini, and it's really quite the opposite. Uh, prior to 1960s, um, every bartender actually, I should say, prior to Prohibition in the 1920s, every bartender knew that you always stirred a Manhattan or a gin or vodka martini or Old Fashioned or Rob Roy. We knew those cocktails were always stirred because all the components were alcoholic and we wanted to, um, to prevent it from being aerated. We want to prevent putting bubbles in there and keep those oily, creamy textures intact that coat the back of our tongue. And then uh, Ian Fleming, not being a bartender, uh, had his suave, debonair James Bond oil uh, order his cocktail shaken, not stirred and we aerated it, we compromised the integrities of the oils, and bartenders, after Prohibition, weren't properly trained on stirring. So they said, oh, let's just shake it, and they would do it once or twice. And now you have these strong, rude things that were just so aggressive on the palate that nobody really enjoyed them. You know, that, just, that, they, that, they looked,
1: you know No, it's such a great point. I'm so glad you mentioned that, because when I discovered a stirred martini versus a shaken martini. I basically said, where have you been all my life? And I couldn't understand why anybody would get the shaken martini. But then I would order the stirred martini. And I'm a pretty pretentious guy, but it felt a little pretentious even for me to say, Please give it to me stirred, not shaken. I think a lot of people like the look of that shaved ice at the top, and they like that it can get so cold so quickly. But, in my view, there's no comparison. It should always be stirred.
8: Well, there's two things. First of all, once we add a mixed or or a non-alcoholic component like olive brine, and you're making a dirty martini, you've you've compromised the integrity of that spirit, and you might as well shake it down and get those ice chips Mm. along the top. But mixologists hate those ice chips because if we we shake it down to the proper rate of dilution, those ice chips continue to melt in our cocktail and water it down. So a good bartender doesn't leave those ice chips on the cocktail. That first chip should be cold and inviting and perfectly balanced. Now, to your point, a good cocktail should be stirred, uh, a good martini should always be stirred, and we want to take that alcohol from about 40% down to about 20 to 22%, just a little higher than a glass of wine, so you can taste your drinking alcohol, but it's not kicking your butt. It just tastes delicious.
1: And if someone goes to a place where you're bartending or mixologizing and they order a martini and they don't spec- specify vodka or gin or a specific type of vodka or gin and they don't specify up or on the rocks and they don't specify olives or a twist, they just said, Hey, you know, I'll take a martini. What do you then do? What's your de facto go-to methodology in making a martini?
8: Well, first of all, the de facto you you don't you should never ask shaken or stirred. If the guest wants it shaken, they'll let you know. But the default should be stirred. Mm. Uh, uh, now, an, uh, now the classic original martini was made from gin. In fact, it was fifty percent gin and fifty percent dry vermouth. And a lot of Americans turned off to that idea because. Um, You know, vermouth is a a fortified wine and wine, once it's exposed to air, eventually becomes bitter and skunky. And we need to properly refrigerate and store our dry vermouth uh, in a a refrigerated unit. So um, if you're going to do that, uh, if you get fresh vermouth, dry vermouth, a 50-50 is really quite a pleasant and and delicious cocktail when properly stirred down.
1: Do people still Uh, serve it that way? Do you still serve it that way?
8: Um it's, it's resurging right now. People are getting back into the C50, wow. But oh. for the last 40 years, people have been ordering at dry, extra dry, extra, extra dry, which means you just look at the vermouth bottle <laughs> really hard. Right. right. Or you wave it over the glass. Uh, traditionally, people just put a splash in, rinse it in, and splash it out. And that's because we're using uh, dry vermouth that's been sitting in the rail for two weeks, mm. a month, Months and and the less we use, the longer it sits out and the more skunky and bitter it gets. We need fresh, dry remove.
1: Okay, so um, it stirred. Fresh dry vermouth instead of uh, vermouth that has been left out. Uh, you will, unless they specify dry, you'll give them a more generous serving of vermouth than what a lot of drinkers are, are doing. And then I know you said the drink originated with gin. Does, do you make that their de facto or do you then ask, do you want vodka or gin?
8: Well, mo- a great question. And my de facto is oh, I love converting people back to gin Me because too. a lot of yeah. people out there listening go have had a bad experience with gin and say, oh, I don't drink gin. People don't know that gin and vodka are the exact same thing. The only difference is that gin is fortified with these botanicals, which give it flavor, and it's distilled to a slightly higher percentage of alcohol. But if we stir that down to the proper uh, alcohol rate, no more or less than vodka, and now it, we shouldn't wince. When we take that first sip, it tastes delicious, it's inviting, and it has lots of flavor to it. So uh, my default is gin. And then a lemon twist, of course, if the guest wants olives, uh, I, I want to have the best possible olives. And, and if you can buy them in the stores, get these uh, bright green Castel Bertrano Italian olives. Those are the best. They just taste phenomenal in a martini
1: and, and you know the other thing is, since you mentioned olives that i've never understood is folks that and i love cheese and i love gin and vodka but i have never understood why anybody in the world would ask for blue cheese stuffed olives in the drink i mean to me it and i've tried it it makes a drink taste greasy i mean to me it's it's a waste of cheese and a waste of gin
8: yeah. I um, Well, here's the thing. Uh, ethanol is a solvent, just like water is, and, and your uh, gin is at higher proof. cuts and breaks down all the oils in the cheese, and they tend to have an oil slick floating on top of your, your cocktail. I'm with you on that one. That started in Chicago. It became a thing. Um, here's my, my feeling about it. If you want to do blue cheese stuffed olives, some people just love it. Get a really good high quality. Don't go, Don't buy the store. Pot ones. They're just terrible. You can go on Amazon and buy a little cheese injector and get a good Stilton blue or a creamy blue cheese, mm. inject it into the olive, and go that route. It just—it tastes better when you do it that way, but you're absolutely right. You're going to get that oil slick floating across the top.
1: Yeah, and, 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 and we're talking with Brian Van Flandern. His uh, website, if you want to check him out or check out some of his books, is mymixologist.com. Uh, talking a little bit about the comeback of the martini. I remember about 15 years ago, people were talking about the comeback of whiskey and scotch and spirits, brown spirits. Was that a real thing? Because to me, it seemed very real. Twenty-five years ago, I don't remember people ordering uh, a neat bourbon or uh, a single malt scotch neat. Now, especially even among young people, you go to a bar and you see brown spirit after brown spirit. What Was that real, number one, and what caused that, number two?
8: Well, it's definitely real, and the the proof is in the numbers. You can just see that bourbon and, uh, to a a lesser degree, Scotch whiskeys uh, have surged. The the sales, the raw numbers across the board are just surging. Uh, A lot of that had to do with this uh, new golden age of the cocktail um, part of being a great mixologist is doing spirits education and drilling down like a, like a sommelier on the wines, really understanding the terroir, the distillation techniques, the aging practices, and what makes these spirits so special. Prior to, you know, the 90s and 80s and 70s, people just knew, you know, you get doers. They had their favorites. I like crown. I like doers. I like whatever. And that's that's what they stuck with. They drank what they knew, and they knew what they loved, and that was it. Now, people want that bespoke experience. They want to discover that thing that nobody else knows about and share it with their friends. (laughs) And it's an affordable, luxury experience.
1: Now, um, I was at a friend's the other day, and um, he poured me a glass of wine from a $12 bottle of wine, which I thought was delicious, and uh, he said, you know, you should do a segment on – the best cheap wine and or the best cheap liquor and i said well i'm actually fortunate enough to have a real expert on this uh, on this front coming on with me if you had to pick a, a liquor and or a wine that's not going to break your budget but, but which is as good as any of these high end brands these name brands these designer brands what are a couple of uh, of inexpensive spirits or wines that you'd name
8: you know, I'm going to sh- show one out there. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie Rocky, uh, his um, cousin or whatever it is, the, the, the drunken bum Paul, uncle. Paulie, right? Polly, Polly. I'm sorry for all you New Yorkers. They're out there cringing. They say, "What are you
1: doing? You can't remember Polly's name." <laughs> oh no, it's the well, Philadelphians that you have angry at you now, not the New Yorkers.
8: <laughs> Fair enough. That's true. So here's the deal. Uh, Paulie, in the middle of that movie, he pulls out a a bottle of Four Roses and starts starts swigging off of it in the meat locker back there. And uh, Four Roses had a great reputation uh, prior to Prohibition, but they sold it after Prohibition was over in the the 20s and 30s, and uh, it was became this rot gut swill. I mean, just. Horrible stuff they would sell to the bums under the bridges. They'd fortify it. It was like Mad Dog 2020 or Wild Irish Rose or some of these other – it was just terrible stuff. And then sometime in the 60s, I was brought by a Japanese company who decided they wanted to make great American whiskey. And they've been winning all kinds of awards for their single malt scotches. And so they made a phenomenal bourbon – but the damage had been done to the reputation, and so it's always been priced at a very reasonable price. But the quality of it is outstanding. There, there's there's a uh, one example of a of a hmm. what's regarded as a, our parents thought that if you're drinking Four Roses, they would said poor Frank, what happened to him? Where, <laughs> where, where, where did he go wrong? But uh, my recommendation is uh, Four Roses is, is is a great example of a of an inexpensive spirit that is phenomenally. Another one's Tito's. Everyone knows Tito's cheap vodka made from corn, but it's distilled in a copper pot alambique still, and um you know it's it's really high quality, it's really very tasty for those who like vodka uh because the corn's naturally sweeter and its price it's 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 inexpensive, it's good to go
1: Have all the good cocktails already been invented
8: Oh by, uh, no, absolutely not here's the Here's the beauty of it when you understand flavor profiling, you know how to balance acids and sugars there is a million acids out there, a million sugars, and then you've got a uh, every day there's new new spirits being distilled, even in the category of whiskey people are experimenting and doing all kinds of crazy new things, so there's literally an infinite number of combinations, and the next great there will never be another cosmopolitan or margarita because there's so many new things coming out there that there will never be that superstar cocktail again. But you'll find instead those cocktails, that superstar cocktail is is specific to a specific venue. I see. So to- we
1: won't see something take off like a Manhattan again. Like there's, there's no drink name for Staten Island. We won't see a Staten Island become the, the gold standard in bars all over the world.
8: Not unless I... Create it, and you promote it. If we we team up, we can make
0: that
1: happen. I'm game. I'm game. Hey, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, Irish taverns that I've frequented over the years. And, you know, you go in a lot of these places, you know that's probably not the best place to order a whiskey sour or uh, you have the highest expectations for a martini. How do you know if you're a patron what to order where? How do you know uh, to make sure you're not ordering um, a drink that's outside of the the purview of what an establishment can handle?
8: Yeah, <laughs> you know, every time I go into a bar with my wife, I, I take a look at the menu. I can tell as a mixologist, I look at the menu and I can tell if a mixologist had a hand in it. If I, you know, if there's if, if you look at the menu and you see an ingredient or three that you don't recognize probably uh, that's a good place to order a cocktail. Really? If okay.
10: Cocktail, that's good advice.
8: Yeah. I mean, if you look at the list and, and you you recognize the name of every cocktail on the list, it's not particularly the original. Chances are it's just going to be the same old, same old, and the bartenders probably haven't been tra- trained, probably. There's always the exception to the rule. Uh, in those places, I just I, I usually just go for my gin and tonic or, or a good Negroni. It's really hard to screw up a Negroni, although, believe me, I've had plenty of bartenders try.
1: <laughs> same, same. Hey, uh, since you are are in New York, if you had to pick your favorite high-end bar in New York, uh, which is, you know, a $15 cocktail or above, and if you had to pick your favorite dive bar in New York.
8: Yeah, you know, um, so uh, high-end, uh, I, it's been around for a long time, but I'm I'm really partial to either uh, PDT, which is Please Don't Tell. Oops. I did it. I told. Oh, well. <laughs> anyway, the point is uh, that's down on 6th Street. Uh, sorry, on 8th Street. That's uh, St. Mark's Street between Avenue A and 1st Avenue. And it's a hidden speakeasy. There's actually, uh, it's like a, you go in there and it says Crypt Dogs on the outside. And you go in there, the, there's a bunch of video games and they sell deep fried hot dogs and beer. And you say, Am I in the right place? And you notice on the left, there's a, a phone booth. You pick up the phone, you dial zero, and somebody says, Good evening. Can I help you? I say, Yeah, I'm. I'm looking for this place. What's your name? Uh, Brian Van Flein, Party of Fort. Yeah. Are you all here? Yes, we're here. And the back of the phone booth opens up, and then you step into this uh, railroad apartment next door, and they've got this uh, small hidden away bar. It's absolutely phenomenal. And uh, that one's great. Death and Company, a couple blocks down, is great and then the Dead Rabbit down on, in the Wall Street district. Those three, well, uh, Dead Rabbit won Best Cocktail Lounge in the oh, world. Oh, sure. No,
1: I've been, I've been there. I, I didn't realize they had reopened after COVID and everything. I'm glad to hear that.
8: Yeah, no, they have. In fact, uh, they're actually opening a new one, I believe, in New Orleans. Uh, uh, so, uh, yeah. It's, it's, and then real quick, t- can, you,
1: can you pick a dive bar that you really enjoy? If if for charm, you know, if nothing else?
8: The ones I used to go to have all closed because they're divey. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, in the Upper West Side, uh, you get up there too far enough in the, I think, 96, there's a place called Dive Bar. (laughs) And, uh, you know, the cocktails are fine for what they are, but uh, you can get good greasy food after you get off late night and you're tired. You can get a, just go to the I box. think
1: a lot of our late-night listeners will appreciate that. Brian Van Flandern, America's top mixologist, the world's second-best mixologist, a uh, award-winning cocktail book author. You can check out his books and a ton of other stuff at mymixologist.com. Brian, I actually have pages more of notes that I want to ask you about. Next time, I want to get you to come in studio so that we can have a drink together.
8: Sounds like a plan. I'll make you one on the air.
1: Uh, believe me uh, I I uh, I wouldn't let you out of here unless uh, unless you did that. So thank you.
8: <laughs> My pleasure.
1: Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, give me a call 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Straight ahead.
0: We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. <laughs>
1: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, so I don't want to out anybody's uh, health status, but a guy that usually works here at night uh, t- a couple of days ago, actually yesterday, he tells me before I come to work, he says, hey, Frank, you know, you better get yourself tested because I just tested positive for COVID. Now, um, I have not been tested because I'm a, of the belief that people are testing too much, and my barometer for not coming to work is if I don't feel well, I'm not going to come to work because whether I have COVID or a cold, I don't want to infect anybody. Now, my understanding with that fella is he was not feeling well when he got to work. He came to work sick. Matt, is that accurate? Do you know this? As far
0: as I know, yeah, the day he was here.
1: No, I don't know why he wouldn't just call out. I mean, whether <laughs> yeah. it's COVID or the flu or a cold. Right. You, why if, risk if you getting anybody feel well. sick? I don't understand. It. Now, uh, so I didn't get tested. I'm not going to get tested because I feel as strong as a bull moose. You did go and get tested, though, right? Well, I, I had uh, home tests. Uh-huh. I took two, actually. And you're a negative. A negative today and yesterday. Right. Okay. And Avery didn't get exposed to this character, so we presume Avery is negative, right? Is that a fair presumption? Okay. Yes. And Philippe, who was walking around here yesterday in a face mask, Philippe, you, you tested and you were negative, evidently, right? Uh, just give me a thumbs up. We, we have a tough time with your microphone, as we know. So, um, yeah, so he's, so everybody's negative. I don't understand one why people are in such a rush to get tested, especially if you're vaccinated. Look, I know you could still get the, get COVID like Governor Hochul has and Stephen Colbert and, uh, uh, who's a a woman that took over for Kathy Lee? Kelly Rippa. Kelly Rippa, they were all vaccinated. They all get the disease. So you can still get it. I realize that. I just, um, I think it's, in the overwhelming majority of cases, going to be very minor. And I think by continuing to test, you're going to get a bunch of people testing positive who are essentially asymptomatic. And I, I don't know that that's going to do anything to help society move on. I think the much simpler rule is... Don't go to work if you're sick. Why risk infecting anybody, even if it's just a cold? So that's my my two cents. I am not getting tested, unless I'm sick. Uh, you know, it's my my view. All right, those of you that are holding, I'll get to you in a minute. 800-848-9222. Don't look now. Alien hearings coming. ASAP, I can't wait. Until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered.
0: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio, 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano.
1: Everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno, and uh, if you are a fan of classic cinema, then I think you have seen the film Citizen Kane, right? And there's this one um, scene in Citizen Kane. It's not one that people talk about a lot, but it's, uh, Citizen Kane, depending on the day, might be my favorite film. And you have... Uh, or Orson Welles is playing Charles Foster Kane, and he's saying to Mister uh, Mister Leland, no, Mister Thatcher. He's saying to Mister Thatcher, um, who's being he, who's his former guardian, and he's represent he's reprimanding Kane for his mismanagement of the newspaper. He says, "You realize you lost a million dollars last year." Uh, Charlie Kane says to him, Yeah, I lost a million dollars last year. I expect to lose a million dollars this year. At the rate of losing a million dollars a year, I expect we'll have to close this place in 50 years. And I don't know why, but that scene was reverberating around my head all day today when I saw the news. Uh, and I think Tucker Carlson did a segment on this yesterday. I didn't see. Tucker show last night, so I can't speak to this. But Congress is set to hold the first open hearing on UFOs or unidentified aerial phenomena in more than 50 years. So, I mean, for whatever reason, I've been thinking, well, look, if we can, uh, if Congress will hold these hearings once every 50 years, maybe that'll be enough. Now, of course, it's not enough. It's not sufficient, but under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence and and Security Ronald Moultrie and the Deputy Director of Naval Intelligence, Scott Bray, they're going to testify before the House Intelligence Committee's subcommittee on counterterrorism, counterintelligence, and counterproliferation next week on May 17th. Now, last year, we covered this extensively at the time, The director of national intelligence said they could only explain one out of 144 UFO sightings by the military since 2004. I want you to let that sink in again. The director of national intelligence said last year they could only explain one, count them, one, which is one more than zero, one out of 144 UFO sightings by the military over the course of the last 18 years now. That doesn't include all the civilian UAP sightings that we've seen in that time. These are just the ones by the military. And I have been screaming, why are there not hearings on this? Now, I have a theory as to why there's not, which is I think there are aspects of the military and the Pentagon that know more than they're letting on. That's just me. But 144 UFO sightings by the military. 143 of which cannot be explained. And you're going to tell me that's not a national security threat potentially? Put put aside the question of aliens. put, Put that aside. What if they're Russian? What if they're Chinese? What if it's something else? How have there not been broader congressional hearings on this? We've got to go every 50 years, once every half century, we get congressional hearings on this. Now, I'm going to tell you more about this, but... Two questions that I want to ask you. I know the audience divides pretty evenly in two corners of the world. And I'm not talking Democrats versus Republicans. I'm talking there are skeptics, people that don't buy that all these UAP sightings are alien or extraterrestrial. By the way, I'm not saying they are. I just want to know what they are. And that's those are the questions I want answered. And, you know, if they're not alien, fine. What are they? So there are the skeptics, the people that don't believe these 143 unexplained sightings are anything to worry about. And then there are the people that are really dogged believers, people who do believe that these 143 UAP sightings are, in fact, or at least potentially many of them, extraterrestrial in nature. So I have a question for the skeptics and then a question for the believers. And everybody can feel free to call. If you're a skeptic, I want you to call our skeptic hotline at 1-800-848-9222 and explain to me what you could hear in this hearing from the Undersecretary of Defense or the Deputy Director of Naval Intelligence that would turn you from skeptic to believer. And I'd also like you to answer the question of, why are you still a skeptic? Um, And I realize I'm oversimplifying the question, but... By the director of national intelligence's own admission, we don't know what 143 of these things are. And yet, why doesn't that concern you? There are still people that write to me and say, oh, Frank spends too much time talking about UAPs. Well, excuse me, show me another explanation for these sightings. And then we can move on. But lacking any explanation then I think I'm obliged, and I give Tucker Carlson credit for doing the same thing, I'm obliged to cover this. Now, that's the skeptic hotline. For the believers, 800-848, we have a believer hotline. That number is 1-800-848-WABC. If you call from a mobile phone, you don't even have to dial the number 1. Just dial 800-848-WABC. That's the believer hotline. My question for the believers is, what questions would you like asked to these Pentagon officials? The Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security and the Deputy Director of Naval Intelligence. What questions would you like asked? And my corollary question on the believer hotline is, do you think the Pentagon knows what's going on here? Or are they just as much in the dark as I am? Um, so for the skeptics, it's one 800 For the believers, it's 1-800-848-WABC. You have your assigned questions. Uh, Congressman Andre Carson, a Democrat who chairs this subcommittee representing the great state of Indiana, said, quote, the American people expect and deserve their leaders in government intelligence to seriously evaluate and respond to any potential national security risks, especially those we do not fully understand. Exactly. At least somebody in Washington has a brain. Uh, Congressman Carson is exactly right, in my view. So um, more than half of these reported incidents, more than half of these 144 incidents, were detected by multiple sensors, multiple sensors, including radar, infrared, electro-optical, weapon seekers, and visual observations. Other incidents featured unusual UAP movement patterns or flight characteristics, and some of these videos have been released. So now, at least Congress is starting to take this seriously. The Department of Defense has established the Airborne Object Identification and Management Synchronization Group, last November, to d- detect, identify, and attribute objects of interest. So at least we're streamlining the UAP sightings process a little bit. And um, I'm eager to see where these hearings go, if anywhere. If if we're only going to have these hearings once a year, let's make them count for something. So that's why I want to hear from the skeptics. What would change your mind? And I want to hear from the believers. What questions do you want asked? Coming up uh, in about 15 minutes, we're going to talk with Tom Devine, of the Government Accountability Project. We're going to talk about uh, nuclear power, specifically the history of Three Mile Island. i got to tell you, I don't know that I had a full appreciation for how close the entire East Coast was to a nuclear meltdown, and yet we were back in the late 70s with the Three Mile Island disaster. could have been much worse. And uh, this fellow, Tom Devine, was there. And we're going to get into it in a big way. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. But Pete on Staten Island has been patiently holding. Hello, Pete.
2: Uh, I went to a place you recommended. It was excellent. I've been going there on Highland. What place? Uh, Grace. Yeah, uh, Grace.
1: What uh, gray, is it? uh Sounds very gray, memorable.
2: Yeah, yeah, it great. Some, they used to be in Tottenham years ago. They moved over there. Lovely lady. Oh, daughter, no, no.
1: The Curly uh, Wolf. The, a, the Curly Wolf.
2: Curly Wolf. Okay. Yeah, you got to mind me. I had a, I had one t- I had one or two tonight. So That's I'm a great go. spot. Great uh, spot. The owner, yeah, Camille, yeah, is great. a wonderful nice lady. lady. Nice people. Beautiful. I really enjoyed it. I had a good time. Yeah. yeah and it was a great uh, spot. She is lovely. She is lovely. That's what I just want to say. And the other night, Curtis... I told him because I was at that game there, the, the Ferry Hawks, and uh, he said to me, oh, I said, I was in the bathroom and Roger Clemens was next to me. He said, well, what is you measuring your swans, you know, the Curtis way? And I was like, uh, what are you talking about? You know, Curtis, it's me. Come on. You know, but it was fun. It was fun. So that's all I wanted to add to the show. And thank you for recommending that place. Oh, good.
1: Yeah. Next time you're in there, be sure to tell Camille, the proprietor, that I said hello. Okay. Definitely,
2: I will. All right. Will. Uh, good you. stuff.
1: Uh, that's a Curly Wolfson. of People check it out. All right. 800-848-9222. Tom is in Brooklyn. Hello, Tom.
11: Good morning, Frank. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm curious. When is the government going to tell us if someone is in contact with these alleged aliens? I have a difficult time believing that these aliens came from uh, wherever and didn't contact someone.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, they may not know. I mean, if that's happened, and I have no idea if it's happened, but if that's happened, they may not even know what the story is there, right?
11: I mean, I'm thinking they're trying to keep it a secret, but there has to be somebody in this government that knows if they're they're actually coming in. They're coming here for billions of miles away and millions of miles away, and um, they're not going to talk to anybody?
1: Yeah, well, I think that's a fair Uh, question. So what questions would you like the members of Congress to ask these two on May 17th when the hearings begin?
11: What kind of contact we have had with, like over radio signals and so forth, and is has they have they tried to contact anyone in our government or in our um, in our world? Period.
1: It's very interesting, Tom. All right, uh, tell me what kind of questions you want asked at these hearings yesterday, or if there's anything that would change your mind. Because I get the sense when we talk about this subject that there's some listeners they just stick their fingers in their ear and they go yeah 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 yeah. Nah. Well, here, what about this evidence? What about this video? yeah. Nah, 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 nah. I don't want to see it. Um you're like a three year old. The, the, you you can't there's no amount of evidence that you can confront them with in which they say, Oh, okay, well that's unusual. What do you think? eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Zach is in Brooklyn. Hello, Zach.
12: Hi. <clears throat> how you doing?
1: Well, hang on, let me check. Um,
3: oh. I'm fine.
12: <laughs> nice. Good. Um so on that note I want to say that uh, you know, you, you mentioned about how testing you feel that you know, it's, there's no need for it if you're sick. You know, I, I totally agree with that. And actually today, throughout the day, uh, when I have their news briefs, they kept, uh, quote, uh, on, on the radio station, on WABC, whenever they had it, they kept quoting, um, I don't know the name, the, the uh, health commissioner or whatever, that's complaining about the exact opposite, that not enough people are testing. We've got to encourage more testing. And they're going on with that again. So I just put um, that out. But I agree with you 100%. Um, and also, I'm a bit of a skeptic on uh, you know on the last issue that you raised with um, you know with these sightings or whatever. I, I think that uh, you know although maybe they're they're if they're saying that they only saw they can only explain one. I just feel that you know maybe, maybe they're not being fully honest with the uh, with the people and they don't want to say that yeah we're doing we're running some of our own tests or. So, or maybe if it is you know China or Russia or whatever you said, uh, they just don't want to you know they don't want to say certain things to us, so they're gonna say okay you know what yeah I'll throw you a bone it's we can explain one we can't explain the others, but it's what it is you know that's that's my personal opinion yeah well I'm Zach a...
1: good uh, good points all uh, Zach thank you very much now the other issue I want to comment on out of Washington and uh, I'm gonna. Look, I try every day, believe it or not, to avoid talking about the Ukraine-Russia war. One, because I don't know whatever what else I can say. I've given you my two cents. I've tried to bring on a variety of uh, opinion makers, especially uh, people that are opinionated against what you hear on most of cable news. But when there's news, I have to bring it to you. And yesterday, the news came that Congress reached a deal on nearly $40 billion In this Ukraine aid package. Now, this deal um, was really remarkable for a few different levels. One, Congress once again demonstrated its eagerness to um, give Zelensky and the Ukrainians $7 billion more in war funding than President Biden requested. Think about that. So Congress, once again, says we're even more into war making than Joe Biden is, even though we're dealing with inflation, even though we're dealing with a real stock market concern. Um, we're going to give the Ukrainians $7 billion more than Biden requested. Now, the interesting thing about this is, well, there are many interesting things about this whole thing. Um, not a single Democrat, which at one time was the anti-war party, Not a single Democrat, not one in the House has any objection to dumping another $40 billion of untraceable high-grade weaponry into Ukraine. Another blank check for continued U.S. military escalation with the country that controls the second largest nuclear stockpile in the world. Every one of them just voted for it. No questions asked. Now, I'm amazed that there were 57 Republicans that actually grew a pair and voted no. And you'll hear from some of them in just a second. But, you know, I mentioned the other day that I went into a card store to buy my wife uh, and, and my mom some cards for Mother's Day. And there, you couldn't buy an American flag lapel pin, but they were selling Ukrainian flag lapel pins. And you're not going to tell me that these Ukrainian flags flying all over the place, including places where you can't find an American flag, and all these Facebook profile photos that are all of a sudden the colors of the Ukrainian flag, um, th- those are more than just totally innocuous displays of solidarity. That certainly um, is contributing to this campaign that has now resulted in Congress ratcheting up the U.S. war commitment to the tune of another $40 billion. Now, it really is. Everyone says Washington can't do anything. Washington takes forever to get things done. How the the two parties can't work together. It's really inspiring, quite frankly. And I think my friend Michael Tracy tweeted something similar. It is really inspiring how swiftly Congress can spring into action to pass billions of dollars of new war funding with this latest round sailing through the very minute they came back from recess, while funding most other things takes months, if not years, of painstaking deliberations. Oh, you want some funding for breast cancer? You want some funding for psoriasis? You want some funding for Alzheimer's disease? Oh, well, let's get a blue ribbon commission to see where that funding is going. Oh, but uh, Zelensky wants uh, $40 billion that we're going to have to borrow money to send him these weapons for? Yeah. Oh, by all means, let's do it. Let's do it. Sales sails through the minute they come back from recess. How many of these congressmen do you think actually read this legislation giving the Ukrainians this weaponry against the country which controls the second largest stockpile of nuclear weapons in the world? That was a point made by Texas Republic. Dip Roy yesterday, this is what he had to say. We got a $40 billion bill at 3
13: o'clock
14: in the afternoon. I haven't had a chance to review the bill. My staff is pouring over the pages trying to see what's in it. You want to talk about the institution? You want to talk about standing up alongside Ukraine? Why don't we actually have a debate on the floor of the People's House, Rice. instead of the garbage of getting a $40 billion bill at 3 o'clock in the afternoon? Not paid for, without having any idea what's really in it, with a massive slush fund that goes to the State Department, $13 billion, $8 billion for the economic support fund, $110 million for embassy security, we've got $40 billion that is unpaid for, and you want to sit here and lecture? this body, about what we're going to do or not do about standing alongside Ukraine? Why don't we talk about the American people who are hurting, the wide open borders, the inflation that's killing people, the jobs that people can't get because of the cost of goods and services in this country? Sitting here and being lectured to when I don't even have time to look at a $40 billion unpaid bill. I make a motion to adjourn. I,
1: I am so thankful that Congressman Roy said that. And whatever you think about Congressman Roy, I find it difficult to disagree with anything he said there. Let's rush through this bill that no one has read, that America um, has to borrow money to pay for at a time when we're dealing with still a pandemic, apparently, and inflation and a bunch of other things, including a, a stock market that's fallen like a rock, or at least going up and down like a roller coaster. And yet, there are only 57 members. Of Congress that said, well, let's maybe not rush this through. Um, Donald Trump Jr. made some similar points on uh, on social media, and he's being ridiculed for it. And I don't think he said it as well as Congressman Chip Roy did. But I found myself agreeing with many of the points that Donald Trump Jr. made as well.
15: Keep going. They don't care. You're paying for it. They get to reap the rewards. Um. Yeah, but it's, it's Russia's fault that we have an inflationary crisis, not, uh, not the Ukraine, right? We have broken bridges, disastrous roads, homeless problems, uh, a disaster at the border, right? It would have taken a couple billion, like three or four billion to finish the border wall and stop a humanitarian crisis there, but no way, we can't do that. But let's send ten times that, in addition to what they've already sent, to the Ukraine. And maybe, just maybe if we're lucky, we can avoid nuclear war with Russia. Guys, to me, it reads as nothing other than Democrats trying to get their kickbacks in before they lose power. Uh, it's absolutely sick. Okay, and Joe Biden, don't tell the American people that inflation is your top priority when you're printing money out the wazoo to send it to this, this clown show. Enough is enough. Let's put America first. Let's maybe get baby formula for our children and our infants. Maybe let's turn our oil pumps back on instead of this insanity. But no, that's not going to happen. We all know it. Not while these idiots are in power.
1: Uh, You know, I don't like calling anybody names. But uh, aside from the fact that he used the term the Ukraine, which is a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, I I think Trump is junior is exactly right. We need to be doing more to build up our own country not send $40 billion worth of weaponry to a country that is not a NATO ally that I don't think you'd see lift a finger if America was attacked. That's my two cents. Eight hundred eight four eight wabc Frank is in Morristown. Hello, Frank.
9: Hey, what's up, Frank? I was going to comment on the alien thing, but... Well, comment uh,
1: on both. We you got talk about... You could comment on both if you, you want.
9: Like. Just... Yeah, you were just talking about Ukraine. I, I feel like... Uh... Ukraine seems like uh, not to I'm not saying nothing's happening there, but it almost seems like a wag the dog situation where they are just kind of using it as uh, like stuff to put on TV so they could, you know, and and a a lot of the so they could like uh, obfuscate from all the other problems. And and I feel like it's just a money laundering operation. Like you're sending money. Where is this money going? We have no idea. Yeah. Like they, they don't show us. Every dollar, every penny, where, where this is going, we have no clue. So, I don't know. The whole thing's really sketchy to me. Jimmy Dore always says, like, oh, $20 billion. I don't know how true this is, but $20 billion would end homelessness or fix homelessness. I don't know how true that is. But, I mean, now we're sending more than double that to Ukraine, which is absolutely insane. But uh, the alien thing, I would say uh, one question I would ask is, Have we ever retrieved anything, any, uh, you know, ships or whatever it possibly is? And another thing is a question I would ask is, is it possible that these are interdimensional beings and not physical or not uh, seen by our eye?
1: Uh, Those are two good questions, Frank. I'm going to disconnect you because your phone is is a little crackly now. Um. Let me first deal with the Ukraine points that, uh, that Frank made. One, um, I, 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 I don't think the Wag the Dog comparison is an apt one. Uh, if you've seen the film Wag the Dog, it's a very good film. Dustin Hoffman, Robert De Niro, um, Willie Nelson, it's a very good film. But basically the president in that film created a, a fake war for political gain. This war is not fake. People are losing their lives. They're losing their homes. That's real. That's real. The question is, Biden wanted $33 billion more for Ukraine. Congress quickly raised it to $40 billion. Now, think about what a billion dollars would mean to anybody, to any person, any country, any city. That's real money. That is life-changing money for a lot of people. And now Congress basically just waved a magic wand on this bill no one voted on and upped it by $7 billion over what the president asked for. Who benefits? Tens of billions of dollars, and you could bet this is not going to be the end of it, it's soon going to be much more, are flying out of U.S. coffers to Ukraine as Americans suffer, as Trump mentioned, as Trip Roy mentioned, and as Frank and Morristown mentioned. So we see who really runs the government. Who's benefiting? Who's benefiting February twenty sixth, Biden approves three hundred fifty million dollars in military aid for Ukraine. March 16th, Biden announces eight hundred million dollars in military aid for Ukraine. March 30th, Ukraine to receive an additional five hundred million dollars in aid from the U.S. April 12th, U.S. announces seven hundred fifty million dollars more in weapons for Ukraine. May 6th. Biden announces new 150 million dollars weapons package for Ukraine, and now we're giving them another 40 billion dollars. Again, I-, I feel bad that Ukraine has been invaded by a hostile country. It's just, I-, I don't think this should be America's war. Those amounts, by themselves, even before you put in the 40 billion dollars, those amounts that I just listed are in excess of three billion dollars. The total US expenditure on the war in Ukraine was close to 14 billion dollars through mid-March, and while some of that is earmarked for economic and humanitarian assistance, most of it goes into the coffers of the weapons industry, including Raytheon, whose board of directors on whose board of directors the current Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin sat. Immediately before being chosen by President Biden to run the Pentagon, as CNN put it, about six and a half billion dollars goes to the Department of Defense so it can deploy troops to the region and send defense equipment to Ukraine. So as enormous as those sums already are, they were dwarfed by the announcement that Biden made that he wanted to send an additional thirty three billion. Congress said, we'll do you one better. We'll send 40 billion. Now. It's difficult to put into context just how much money that is. Especially since this war is only 10 weeks old. Where are we going to be 10 weeks from now? We're going to give them another $80 billion? Um, The amounts allocated thus far already exceed the average annual amount that the U.S. spent for its own war in Afghanistan. Think about that. We spent, the American taxpayers spent, this was after we were attacked on September 11th. Does anybody remember that? The longest war in American history, which resulted in the, in, you know, as a byproduct of September 11th, we spent $46 billion in Afghanistan in a 20-year war, which ended only eight months ago. There was at least some pretense of a self-defense rationale there. Now the U.S. is spending more than that annual average after just 10 weeks of a war in Ukraine that nobody claims has any remote connection to American self-defense. Does that make any sense to you? And yet when I point this out and Chip Roy points this out and Donald Trump Jr. points this out and Marjorie Taylor Greene even points this out, where are the crazies? Where are the crazies? not the people trying to send 40 billion dollars of your money to fight a country that hasn't attacked us. Even more amazingly, the total amount spent by the U.S. on this Russia-Ukraine war in less than three months is close to the Russia's total military budget for the entire year. Well, Washington depicts Russia as some sort of existential menace to the united states the reality is the u.s spends more than 10 times on its military what russia spends on its military each year this is crazy who's benefiting well the military industrial complex and i know i i know that whole tone has a conspiratorial bent to it but that's who's benefiting these billions of dollars are going right into the hands of military defense manufacturers and their lobbyists, and you can bet it's going to be used to do a lot of lobbying, to make a lot of contributions to the politicians that are making these decisions, and then when they finish their service, to give spots on the board of directors to people like Lloyd Austin and others, and General Milley, and uh, y- you name it. May 3rd, President Biden visited a Lockheed Martin facility and praised, this is what he said the plant that manufactures that manufacturers Javelin anti tank missiles, saying their work was critical to the Ukrainian war effort and to the defense of, democra- the defense of democracy itself. So, by, def- by transferring so much military equipment to Ukraine, the U.S. has actually depleted its own stockpiles, necessitating their replenishment with these mass government purchases. So you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to marvel at what great news this is for the entire military industrial complex. They lost their primary weapons market just eight months ago when the war in Afghanistan ended. Well, do you think they're going to sit and deal with those stock losses? You think they're going to go and um, just eat this loss? No. No. They're making money hand over fist eight months after that Afghanistan war ended because of this Ukraine war. And I don't think it's a coincidence. I think, you know, qui bono, who benefits? I think if you look at who's benefiting, you see who some of the driving force is behind the United States investing so much money in trying to turn Cold War 2.0 into Hot War 1.1. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Pamela is in Central Florida. Hello, Pamela.
16: Yeah, I agree. Um, this is like a, a friend uh, you have walking into a bar buying drinks for everybody that he can't afford, and you're trying to keep him in control. And uh, and you're right. Isn't this the reason why we pulled out of Afghanistan so we wouldn't have to have a war budget and 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 doing all this so called and. And then Biden is supposed to be anti-capitalist, and he won't open up our energy resources. We're going to freeze to death this winter. The Northeast is still using heat. Have you seen the price of heat for spring uh, 50-degree weather? It's like the same as for the hard uh, center of winter. And uh, the infrastructure bill that they passed a while back is being used to buy phones instead of fixing our roads. And this is going on to look like the big shot and also, like you said, to make money for the for for uh, certain corporations. But I thought they weren't capitalists. They Biden weren't capitalists. has never
1: claimed not to be a capitalist. That's that's not true. He, his critics have said he's not, but he's never said. I think if you look at the interest that that he and others close to him have in making money, they're very much into capitalism as long as it benefits them. But thank you, Pamela. You know, it's funny to your point about these corporations. Look at. What the what the New York Stock Exchange average has been from November of twenty twenty one to now, and then compare that. Compare just the average of the stock market to Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, to General Dynamics, and to Raytheon. While people are losing their lives, and while the United States is inching closer and closer to war. With Russia, these companies' stock prices have bulged up very nicely. Um, So my question, if you're paying $4.36 a gallon for gasoline, and you can't find baby formula, and you're riding on roads and bridges that are in states of disrepair, how does any of that benefit you? Do you want to send $40 billion to Ukraine? I don't. Um, We're going to move on and talk to Tom DeWine in just a second. But Al in Florida has been patiently holding. Hello, Al.
7: Good morning, Frank. A couple of things. There's no way in hell that $4 billion is going to go to Ukraine. I heard, and I can't remember who it is, whether it was Greg Kelly or Mark Levin that said how much, maybe 10% of that money might end up in Ukraine. The rest of it is exactly what that person who you quoted said about uh, it's to, uh, for the demon rats to pay whatever they need to before November, because they know they won't have access to it after. And the other thing is that a lot of, when you mentioned the fifty-seven people that were against it was that
1: 57 democrats no it was 57 republicans zero democrats
7: okay and the bad thing about that whole thing in the house will be that they'll have proxy votes so the democrats don't even have to show up in the house to vote yes or no on that shit i Uh, mean it's yeah you can't can't say that
1: just be careful there um now I just want to point out that as we send – uh, similar to what everybody is saying – and look, I'm I'm going to move on because I get a little crazy and because it sounds like at least in some of your cases I'm preaching to the choir or um, you've already become so disgusted with, um, with me on this subject that you've just given up on me. But at a time when we're borrowing $40 billion worth of money to b- send to military contractors and weapons manufacturers – Almost 30 million Americans are without health insurance. 40% of popular baby formula brands are sold out. Um, many Americans are unable to afford college. And the monthly poverty remained elevated in February with a 14.4% poverty rate. For the total U.S. population. Overall, 6 million more individuals were in poverty in February relative to December. Don't you think any of that is a more important use of $40 billion than giving it to Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and General Dynamics to build weapons to send to fight a country that never attacked us? I do. All right, we'll talk about um, nuclear power and the Three Mile Island disaster with Tom Devine. Straight ahead.
0: It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC.
1: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, if you've tried to fill your gas tank recently, you've probably noticed the record high price of gasoline. I think yesterday, a new average uh, record was set at $4.36. Now, usually, at least in the course of my lifetime, whenever energy prices for things like fossil fuels start going up, we hear a lot of people start talking about nuclear power. A uh, nuclear power, according to the proponents of it, is is a way for people that uh, is a way to avoid greenhouse gas emissions. It's a way to uh, not have to deal with uh, drilling or things of that nature. But are there other implications? Well, very interesting story in the New York Post the other day, focusing on the nuclear nightmare that almost took out the East coast. I'm sure you've heard the term Three Mile Island. You may even know a little bit about what happened, but I'm guessing you don't know all the players. And there's a new docuseries on Netflix which deals extensively with this. And um, I was very, very in the dark about some of the important people who made this possible. Not only the uh, people that uh, handled the cleanup and things of that nature, but Some of the whistleblowers involved here, one of the people that's featured in this Netflix documentary and was featured in this New York Post article is Tom Devine. He is a lawyer, an investigator, a lobbyist, a teacher and an advocate for whistleblower rights. He's also the legal director at the nonprofit Government Accountability Project. Kind enough to join me this morning. Tom, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thanks for having me. Uh, Tom, before we uh, discuss Three Mile Island, what exactly is
17: the Government Accountability Project? What do you guys do? Uh, we're a nonprofit, uh, nonpartisan organization that helps whistleblowers. Uh, we we're lawyers and we defend them against retaliation all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, uh, we investigate their charges and help make a difference, which is the whole point of uh, that exercising freedom of speech. Uh, we fight all the time to get stronger whistleblower rights laws. and laws. Led, led the charge for about 38 laws that have been passed from Washington, D.C. to the United Nations. And, and we teach at law school clinic and put up books and survival guides on um, so uh, other whistleblowers
1: can learn learn the lessons. Uh, yeah, actually, it was uh, Ralph Nader that first brought you to my attention. And uh, as I'm sure you're aware, he's a big admirer of what uh, what you guys are doing. So uh, I think that's, uh, that's certainly great. I- explain to folks who may not be fully appreciative of the importance of whistleblowers in private sector companies why they're so important. Why is protecting whistleblowers and safeguarding whistleblowers whistleblower rights, such an important thing to do?
17: Well, it, it works in both directions. Um, in terms of protecting the public, uh, it's it gives us a chance to be warned about and expose and stop uh, abuses of power by large corporations that could cause social catastrophes, like the Three Mile Island cleanup that almost led to a complete meltdown. Certainly the, the, the corporations were, were willing to risk it. Um, uh it, it can get horrible, dangerous drugs off the market that haven't been properly tested. Uh, um, you know, whistleblowers, they're, they're the eyes and ears of the public. And, you know, ignorance is vulnerability. Um, we need to know uh, they have control of our lives, what's actually going on. Uh, but they're also a benefit to the companies. Um Uh, The studies have shown that whistleblowers are responsible for exposing and catching more fraud against corporations than internal audit departments, compliance departments, and law enforcement combined. Um, And companies that actually listen to the messenger instead of trying to kill them, um, they have um, fewer Pure findings of uh, illegality by mm. the government and fewer lawsuits against them. And the lawsuits they have are settled uh, for much more modest terms. Uh, it- this is a win-win for everybody except those who are relying on abuses of power. Sustained by secrecy. In the
1: cases that you've observed, even if it's ones that your group hasn't necessarily handled, how often do corporations embrace and try to ameliorate the concerns of the whistleblower, and how often do they, as you termed it, try to kill them?
17: Well, um, unfortunately, um, uh, companies that have worked constructively with whistleblowers are, are more of the exception really? than the rule. Um, but. Those that have have had outstanding results, and that's the reason why uh, the Association of Certified Productors um, and Pricewaterhouse Cooper in a global survey found that whistleblowers are a resource to corporations um, if they don't retaliate. All right. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the Three
1: Mile Island situation. If people are a little rusty on their history from the late 1970s or if they weren't born yet at the time, give us a a quick refresher course of exactly what happened at Three Mile Island.
17: No, they had um, a combination of a technical breakdown and human error that led to uh, a partial meltdown, which means they they lost control of the radiation uh, at the plant uh, and couldn't shut it down. Uh, And uh, it wasn't a complete disaster like at Chernobyl or Fukushima, but um, it came mighty close. And there was a lot of radiation released. And in the aftermath, they had a humongous cleanup job to do. Um, they had a, a reactor vessel head, which was the molten rubble uh, of the, the core of the nuclear power plant, uh, it was 200 tons, and had to be uh, re- removed. Uh, it was, you know, um, uh, emitting radiation all over the place. Uh, and um, that meant relying on a, a polar crane um, that was capable of doing the job if it worked. Uh, but its brakes and electrical system had been totaled in the accident. Um uh, and the, the company running the cleanup uh, operation, the Bechtel Corporation, uh, in order to get a speedy cleanup bonus, multimillion-dollar bonus for a fast cleanup, said, so we don't have time to do load tests. In other words, checking if the crane actually could carry weight. Uh, and they decided just to take a chance, make a gamble. Um, uh, all of the, the, the leaders of the cleanup who are conducting it so we can't we can't do this. This is illegal, um, and it's liable to risk a uh, complete meltdown, which will take up the east coast. And um they got nowhere. And um this is
1: in the Three Mile Island power plant, the nuclear power plant was in Pennsylvania. So a, a disaster, a three mile island, could have had much wider implications and ramifications for the whole East Coast, couldn't it?
17: Well, it would have taken out Philadelphia. Um Boston, uh, New York City, Baltimore, Washington D.C. for years, and and why didn't it? What what went right? I guess
1: in this particular instance,
17: what went right is that there's nothing more powerful than the truth if it's exposed effectively. Um, uh, Rick Parks, who was running the procedures for the cleanup and was the um, the pioneer whistleblower, uh, uh, contacted us at Government Accountability Project. We. Um, there was less than a week before the the re- reactor vessel head was going to be lifted um, uh, with the suspect polar crane. And uh, we spent 40 out of 48 hours preparing a 55-page statement uh, with all the evidence and documents and um, filed a lawsuit um, two days before the, the cleanup, um, had a press conference, a dueling press conference with Bechtel and General Public Utilities that drew more attention to it. And um, the NRC decided to wait and get the real fix before they allowed this to go forward. Um, and um, that led to the beginning of the end of the cover-up And basically the saving of the East Coast, um, because there was congressional hearings, um, the company couldn't defend itself. The NRC resident inspector, who was basically uh, in bed with the utility, um, couldn't defend what had happened. Um, uh, There was a major NRC investigation that came out of it, and uh, they found that cleanup was systematically illegal, Um, but... Um, six months after uh, Rick Parks and the other whistleblowers exposed the truth um, in order to to be redone from scratch, um, which it was. And there was hundreds of repairs made on the polar crane uh, over the next year. Um, It passed all the load tests, and it still, when it lifted the reactor vessel, froze numerous times, including a sustained period over half an hour um so i shudder to think what would have happened if they had tried to rely on that thing without doing the year's worth of work mm. that the list of exposed. Uh,
1: so the role, and people just tuning you know, in, we're talking with Tom Devine. He is with the Government Accountability Project. The role of the Government Accountability Project, as it relates to Three Mile Island, was protecting uh, Rick Parks and these other whistleblowers that came forward to call shenanigans, basically, on uh, not only what the utility was doing, but what the folks involved in the cleanup were doing.
17: Um, that's right. Uh, and then to help Rick make a difference, we represented him about the investigations and um, took more statements and uh, other witnesses and supporting information and funneled it to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And you got to roll up your sleeves and do the hard work, um, not just sound the alarm. Mm-hmm. Uh and it, it, this um Netflix documentary
1: has a lot of people sort of revisiting the whole issue of nuclear power. I know you're in uh one of the episodes yet. I haven't seen this docu this docu series. In your role is this docu series worth seeing? Have you seen it?
17: Oh, it's it was educational for me even though I was immersed even in the happened. Um uh it's it tells um Uh, a vital part not only of american history but how important freedom of speech is um um just not only for democracy to prevent disasters which threaten our society um uh if it weren't for rick parks uh, and the other whistleblowers at at three mile island god knows what would have happened um uh, we need these people as our voices and and i want to make a pitch right now to your listeners um congress This is at a crossroads to modernize the whistleblower rights, which have become badly outdated. What used to be like the pioneer rights are now the dinosaur rights compared to the rest of the world. Um, For uh, civil service workers, uh, for government contractors, and for NRC and DOE employees, as well as for law enforcement officers to fight police abuses. Um, Your listeners should be getting in touch with their congresspeople and telling them to support these whistleblower reforms. Um, we need them for law enforcement, NRC and DOE employees, civil service employees, government contractors, and we got and we'll have a lot more uh, victories for uh, victories for the truth.
1: And what exactly would that legislation do aside from strengthen the role of the whistleblower? How specifically would it benefit future whistleblowers?
17: The benefit would be by getting the whistleblowers access to um, jury trials in federal court to defend their rights, where justice would be determined by the citizens that the whistleblowers uh, are purporting to defend when they risk their careers. Right now, um, civil service employees, um, NRC and DOE employees, um, um, they have to go before administrative boards that are very vulnerable to political pressure. It's not a good day in court. And the police officers, they go by internal units within their own departments that they blew the whistle on to seek justice. uh, there's just not a safe channel for the truth.
1: Interesting. Hey, uh, before we before we end the conversation, I have to get your take on the role of nuclear energy in general. We haven't seen a new nuclear power plant open in this country in decades, and uh, we've seen some nuclear power plants, including Indian Point, right here in New York State, actually uh, actually close or prepare to close. In your view, what are the long-term prospects of nuclear power in this country or in
17: the world? Well, we've got a few problems that really have to be solved before it's responsible to rely on this. Um, one is what to do with all the radioactive waste. Um a huge number of whistleblowers Um, and leaks of radioactive waste out in uh, Hanford, Washington in the Pacific Northwest. Um, We don't know what to do with it. Um, Second thing is how to safeguard it against terrorist and and war uh, incidents. We saw a close call recently in Ukraine uh, when war broke out. Um, These things are very, very dangerous. And strike three is the human factor. Um, Nuclear power is always uh, very impressive, advanced technology, um, in, in the abstract. Uh, if it's if it's done as it's designed, um, but the human factor of uh, skipping the safety tests, having substandard materials, um, um, uh, uh, cutting corners, um, cheating. Um, uh, A lot of these nuclear power plants were, you know, built like it was a New Jersey construction company, you know, cheating on the highways. Uh, You can't do that. Um, The stakes are just too high. Uh, So um, I'm pessimistic whether it's ever going to be responsible. Uh, And it's unfortunate uh, because it's, it's impressive technology. Interesting.
1: Well, uh, I appreciate the time this morning. I hope we could talk again soon. Uh, thanks for your great work on behalf of whistleblowers, and uh, I'll look forward to checking out this documentary. Oh, by the way, the, do- the name of the documentary, I don't have it in front of me. What is-, what is it? It's called Meltdown. 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 I will absolutely be checking that out. Tom Devine, thanks so much for the time this morning. Thanks for having me. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, give me a call. 1-800-848-WABC. It's 1-800-848-9222. You shudder to think about what would have happened if things went the other way. Uh, a nuclear meltdown affecting the whole East Coast. My goodness. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead.
0: It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. <laughs>
1: Tomorrow, everyone, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Hey, I want to thank Walter Sterling. Uh, He's a radio consultant. That's his on-air name. He also does a terrific show, Sunday Nights, a syndicated show. Um, His real name as a consultant is Walt Sabo. And he wrote a terrific column in Talkers about how great overnight radio is and how stations should do more of what WABC is doing overnight. And he was kind enough to mention me in the column as a model uh, for what Overnight Radio was doing correctly. So he didn't have to do that, uh, but I found myself agreeing with everything he said, uh, not just the points related to me. So if you want to read that, I've posted it on my Facebook page at uh, facebook.com slash fan. That's uh, facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O-Fan. Also, I want to thank uh, my friend Corey Windelspecht, who is um, who's been a guest on this show before, who's a great guy, and he and I were exchanging emails the other day, and uh, ultimately he said that um, you know we were talking about trying to get together, and uh, he said essentially that um, uh, he moved to Hudson County, he moved to. Uh, I think Hoboken. He said, when I moved to New Jersey, I registered as a Democrat so I could have a vote in the Hudson County democratic primary elections. Since most of the Hudson County Hoboken Democrats run unopposed after the primary plus gives me an opportunity to vote for a fringe Democrat that may be able to upset a primary, but not win a general helping the Republican candidate. Anyway, that being said, you, my friend are one vote closer to being elected sheriff of Hudson County. So he sent me a copy of his ballot and he wrote me in for Hudson County Sheriff in the Democratic primary. Now, I used to discourage people from doing this kind of thing because the truth is, even if I was elected, I probably wouldn't move to Hudson County to serve. But why not? If you don't want to vote for anybody in the primaries, vote for me. Till then, keep asking questions.
0: This
1: everyone this is the other side of midnight I'm Frank Morano well we have covered James Cromwell gluing himself to a Starbucks the comeback of the martini why I'm not getting covid tested even though an employee and a co-worker was tested positive the UFO hearings that are starting next week on the hill the Ukraine aid package that is passed the uh, uh, the Three Mile Island nuclear disaster My getting at least one vote for Hudson County Sheriff in the Democratic primary. The talkers column, uh, which is kind enough to mention me. And what else is there left to do? So uh, I think one of the interesting trends that I've noticed is what they are calling the great resignation. Have you been following this? Uh, Essentially, what the great resignation is, is what we're seeing right now in the workplace, which is a whole bunch of people quitting. And right now, the job turnover job turnover is 20 percent higher in the workplace now. And it's a very interesting workplace now. We're all remote and we're in this hybrid working world. And it's going to stay that way for the foreseeable future, apparently. And companies should apparently brace for a lasting culture of quitting, of employers quitting, of employees quitting. Listen to this. Some 37 million people will leave their jobs in the U.S. this year. 37 million. That is a 20% jump from pre-pandemic levels. A company that was seeing a f- Zoom... um so Zoom has now dominated the workplace and people are meeting by Zoom. I hate these Zoom meetings. I hate them. I did a Zoom meeting yesterday. It was It's the most annoying thing in the world. A company that was seeing a fifth of its workforce turn over annually before the pandemic, for example, can now expect to lose almost a quarter of its employees each year. Think about that. Brian Kropp, the chief of research for Gartner's HR practice, told Axios, this is for as far as the eye can see at this point. The great resignation, that's what they're calling it. People are going to be quitting their jobs or changing their jobs as far as the eye can see. As long as we're in this world of remote and hybrid work and it's hard to see us getting out of it, that elevated level of turnover – is going to stick with us. So what's happening? Flexible work means that the cost of leaving a job is far lower. One, workers have options. The companies eager to hire you aren't just the ones within commuting distance anymore. Remote work means that there are many more places to land if you quit. Additionally, this is an important point, and I find this true, but it's not something I would have thought of. Work friendships are weaker. Employees, according to this fellow, Brian Kropp, employees pick a place to work, not just for rational reasons like compensation or benefits, but emotional and social reasons like that's where my friends are. Remote and hybrid work weakens those connections as there's far less FaceTime at the office or sometimes none at all. So taking away work from anywhere is not an option for most companies. We've done that, and I'm very proud that our company's done that. You know what everyone does here? They come to work. But a lot of other employers aren't doing that. So taking away work from anywhere is not an option for most companies. Seven in ten workers now think of work flexibility um, as something that they're not willing to do away with. Companies have apparently are going to have to bring in more recruiters to handle these long-term load of open roles. And they'll have to build some redundancy into teams so that products and clients don't suffer from these turnover spikes. So I do wonder if it's possible to bring down this turnover rate of people quitting. How would you deal with the great resignation which is apparently continuing without end. 800 Additionally, there were two other semi-related items related to this, and I found it very interesting. One was a BBC story. Headline, how remote work could nix the sick day. You know, I've wondered about this. I mean, unless you're bedridden, unless you're dying, if you're not going into a physical office... Why are you still taking sick days? You can't stumble your way to a computer screen or a telephone. Sick days used to mean resting, not working. But now more employees are logging in from home as they fight illness. After all, if people are remote already, I take the time off. You know how many sick days I've taken since we worked here? Zero. Now, I did have a COVID exposure twice, and there were, I think, three or four days where I had to do the show from home. You know how many sick days I took at my last job, which I was at for 10 years? Zero. I've just never gotten the, um, look, if you're sick, you should stay home. And I'm, I'm sure at my last job, there were some days where I came into work and I shouldn't have. And again, seeing where we are with COVID and spread of of communicable diseases, you shouldn't do that. But these days, if you're working from home, is there really a need To take the sick day? Because before the pandemic, you had ill workers like me in that example that I just gave, showing up to the office, coughing, spluttering away as they tackled their workloads. Today, sick employees can work remotely, keeping their germs to themselves. But this shift raises a new dilemma for workers. Exactly how sick do you have to be to take a sick day from home? Before all this remote work, the choice was really binary. You either power through despite feeling lousy and go to the office or you stay home and abandon work for the day. Now, that's not the case. Colds or flu, you know, they could be bad or they could be eh. If you're eh, don't you just work through it? So apparently it's a problem that could become more common as hybrid and remote work is spreading. Now, this is the last thing as it relates to the workplace that I want to bring to your attention. And this is, I find, the most troubling, but it's because of the same issues, which is you're not going into a workplace, you're not connecting with your manager, you're not connecting with your coworkers, and it's not leading to a sense of community like you used to have at the workplace. By the way, if you want to comment, we have one, two, three, four, five open lines. Now's the time, 800-848-WABC. Are you familiar with the concept of ghosting first of all i find ghosting in any scenario to be incredibly rude to do to somebody but the, the first time i heard the term ghosting it was in the in the dating world and i'm trying to think if i was ever ghosted i'm sure i was but i i can't think of a specific example but um essentially the, the the term ghosting, as it was explained to me, and as I understand it, would be you go on a date with somebody, or maybe you meet somebody at a bar, um, and you like them, right? You go on a date, maybe two dates, and then you decide you don't like them. But you don't want to go through the whole rigmarole of breaking up with them. After all, it's early in your relationship. So what do you do? You just... Stop communicating. No return text messages, no return emails, uh, no return phone calls. Done. That's what they call ghosting. And I'm trying to think if I've ever done that to someone. I don't think so. The closest thing that I've ever had with respect to ghosting was when I was in graduate school. I I was going to graduate school at NYU, and I was pretty busy working here and doing other things. And essentially, I decided rather than go through any formal process of dropping out or and and I don't recommend this, by the way, um, but rather than go through any formal process of withdrawing from classes or matriculating or whatever, I just stopped going to class and stopped paying tuition. That was my version of graduate school ghosting. I don't recommend that at all. But now. It's one thing to ghost a uh, bad date. Or a classmate that hits you up for a, an alumni donation. But these days, people are actually ignoring, essentially, communications from companies that have hired them for decent-paying jobs. Can you imagine that? Big article in the Wall Street Journal about this this week. So here is the most galling part, and this is the what I find the most sickening part about this, to be honest. People are not even showing up for work on the first day. Think about that. They apply for a job. They get the job. They're hired. And then they just don't show up. Apparently, this is a real enough problem that employers are are talking about this. So as this job boom continues... Employers who are creating jobs and trying to fill existing ones will continue to be plagued by indifference, according to the WSJ, as John Batchelor would call it, from the generation that's responsible for this great resignation. Manufacturers, restaurants, airlines and cleaning companies are among the employers seeing a surge of job seekers who accept positions and are neither seen nor heard from again. Listen to this. Southwest Airlines Company said that 15 to 20% of new hires for some jobs don't turn up on their first day. I am floored by that. Absolutely floored. It would never occur to me to do that. Um, apparently, in this tight labor market, employers reported that some staffers quit without giving notice. I would never do that either. You know, um, the last company that I was at before there, before this one, I was there for 10 years. It was a difficult thing for me to quit. But I gave two weeks notice. And you know what? I tried as hard as I could to um, do my job as effectively as I could for two weeks. And I tried as hard as I could for, to prepare the next guy after I left. I can't imagine just quitting with no notice. And you know what? When I was here, when I left here for the first time, when Curtis and I went to another radio station, I'll never forget. A friend of mine, um, used to do this, this great show at night. It was on an internet TV network. And basically it was a cocktail party masquerading as a TV show. And it was great. It was, it was called Street Sense, but you'd have all these people getting together, getting drunk and then debating politics. And it was a fun place to hang out at. And I, I was always, you know, bummed because I worked nights at the time because Curtis's show was on at night. I was always bummed that I couldn't go down there for the show because I was busy at work. So um, I was there to drop off something at this studio for a friend of mine. And he said, well, why don't you just stick around? I said, no, I can't. I got to get back to work. He says, Frank, you have a, a job that you're quitting in four days. W- what do you care if you're a little late? And my attitude was I don't care if it's my first day or my last day. You do the job as best you can every day. But um apparently it's becoming common. This practice of just s- not showing up for your shift anymore, like I did at NYU, has now picked up its own shorthand. Employers are calling it, and I've never heard this term before until this journal article, employers are calling it no call, no show. So more people are vanishing before even starting a job candidates evidently for jobs according to keith wolf who's a a managing director at a recruiting firm candidates have so many options in this job market that typical professional etiquette is being ignored and i find that really disturbing so um 1. What do you think about this? What do you think it does remote work mean the end of the modern sick day? 800-848-9222. 2. If you're an employer, how do you deal with the great resignation that's never ending? 800-848-WABC. 3. What is your view on more and more employees simply ghosting their employer? I got to tell you, I side with the worker over management on almost Every single dispute, you go down the line and if there's a dispute between labor and the people that control the means of production, just call me Karl Marx because I am almost always with the labor people. But this is an area which I find absolutely inexcusable. No call, no show, just leaving or worse yet, not even showing up. I couldn't live with myself. If I did this, I'd be racked with guilt. Have you ever done this? And if you're an employer, have you ever experienced anyone doing this? 800 848 WABC. Isn't this what Bill Belichick did to the Jets? I seem to recall this is pretty close to what he did. All right. uh, Comment on um, any aspect of this that you like. If you want to comment on an issue that we've covered previously, you can as well. Two open lines, 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Joe in Queens. Hello, Joe. Yeah, how you doing,
18: Frank? I'll I'll just keep it to dating people. My opinion is that what happens is people might be looking for someone that stand out. But until you find that, why not? Put everybody into the box of eh, maybe, you know. There's something a little bit here, uh, instead of just discarding them outright. You know, if you're looking for something where you know the person is uh, head over heels interested in you, has a certain look that that really excites you. Why not? Like, in, in other words, keep a tear of the opposite sex that's at least. Ballpark at least a little bit of interest, and you know if you ever get the the big fish, maybe maybe not, but at least like don't throw away every fish automatically.
1: Well, I mean, I think that's certainly true, Joe. And I, I try not to ghost in any relationship. You know, I'll be honest one of my one of the um, issues that's a constant source of stress and turmoil with my current wife, not my only wife. And my previous girlfriend was that I have a lot of friends and a lot of very close friends. And I'll be honest, I'm very proud of that. Um, I have worked my whole life to build a broad network of relationships. And I have more close friends than the average person. And it does take a toll not only on me. Because, you know, a, a friendship requires work, it requires maintenance. It requires you doing favors for them, helping them move or whatever. Giving money when their uh, uh, child is, raised, is uh, doing the March of Dimes or something. And when you're in a relationship with me, unfortunately, sometimes even though you didn't choose these friendships, you have to deal with a little bit of that. You have to deal with some of these people coming over your house at different times. And it does take a toll. So I don't ghost anyone. I don't ghost a single person. There's not a single person that I, except there's one person that's sort of stalking me now that I am ghosting. Aside from that person, I have never ghosted anybody, anybody at all. I talk to everybody. Um, but that's a choice. To me, in the professional setting, in the workplace, there there's no debate. It's completely, in my judgment, inexcusable. What do you think? 800-848-WABC, uh, 800-848-9222, three open lines if you want to comment. Dara is in Saratoga. Hello, Dara. Morning, Frank. Morning.
16: Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the remote workplace. Um, I've been a remote worker for, 100% remote worker for a decade before it was cool. However, I'm old enough to have experienced the traditional workplace. And uh, the workplace really has changed. No more 20 20- Gold watch loyalty millennials who I respect because they're smart and they're cool and they have a different sense of working now and in our company we are experiencing what they call the boomerang and a boomerang is a person who left right in the in the great resignation um, they're uh, you know like after a year if they're not promoted and on their way up the chain they they get discouraged they leave they're not in for life. Um, but the boomerang comes back to the company, realizing, hey, I was wooed away for money or this or that, and realize my culture, my path, my my being, even though um, it, and the, the company is accepting them back. like there's no there's no mosque there. And that to me was incredible. Like it used to be, you know, you resigned, you burned that bridge, you moved on. There was a little bit of a rough patch there. But in certain industries like mine, they're happy to have the credential. It makes that person, like, comes right back in the chair like they never left. Um, Also, sick time is different in a virtual working environment. We don't have sick time anymore. We have PTO time, paid time off, which means you don't have to tell your employer. You don't have to pretend you're sick. The the culture right now in in these virtual workplaces is like you just need a day off, like get away from the screen, get the sun on your face. The company that I work for really encourages that work-life balance. So you, you trade in all that sick and all that BS for just having a little balance in your life. And it's very liberal, and I really like it because you don't have to pretend with your life anymore. It's just your, your work is part of your life now.
1: Yeah, no, I get the appeal. Uh, believe me, it's just some of these other... You know the the ancillary cultural shifts like um just ghosting your employer that's something that I don't have um any uh, that I don't have any understanding for. My wife is fully remote she works from home and um even once the pandemic ends, she's going to continue working remotely but I don't think she would ever ghost her employer and I don't think that you would either
16: I haven't and because I come from that traditional background and I'm an older mature person, I need my job I love where I work, so no problems but the younger people, they don't have loyalty. We have no call, no shows, and they don't have any problem with it. And I just think it's rude, and I, I just think it's something that will kind of ease out once people find their place and this turn changes and we all get used to maybe a blend of virtual and traditional office. Um, but the no call, no show is real, and it's, it's every time it happens, it, it stuns me.
1: Well, it's, uh, me too. And Dara, thank you very much for the call. And I think Dara really articulated well how the modern workplace has changed. She talked about that era of, um, an employee really being part of a community. And I have to say, maybe it's because we work for a family run business. It is that way here. Um, it really is. But, um, that era of getting a gold watch after your 20 years of service is something that has changed and it's been changing for a while and i think in some respects it was very key to donald trump's appeal uh, because he had americans nostalgic for a different era of workplace where and in part it was done, it was done away with with the demise of the american manufacturing sector but the first guy who really articulated how the workplace had changed was that incredible philosopher, former heavyweight champion of the world, the American dream, Dusty Rhodes. And he did it in the run-up to Starcade 1985.
10: Here is the American dream, Dusty Rhodes. And, Dusty, your fans, welcome you back, man. <sighs> First of all, I would like to thank the many, many fans throughout this country, that wrote cards and letters Dusty Rhodes, the American Dream, while I was down. Secondly, I want to thank Jim Crockett Promotions for waiting and taking the time because I know how important it was. Starcade 85, it is to the wrestling fans, it is to Jim Crockett Promotions. And Dusty Rose the American Dream, with that weight, got what I wanted. Ric Flair, the world's heavyweight champion. I don't have to say a lot more about the way I feel about Ric Flair. No respect. No honor. There is no honor among thieves in the first place. He put hard times on Dusty Rhodes and his family. took your place, daddy. That's hard time. That's hard time. And Ric Flair, you put hard times on this country by taking Dusty Rhodes out. That's hard time. And we all had hard times together. I admit I don't look like the athlete of the day supposed to look. My belly's just a little big. My hand is just a little big. But brother, I am bad and they know I'm bad. And there were two bad people. One was John Wayne and he's dead, brother. And the other was right here. Major Boy Ric Flair. The world's heavyweight title belongs to these people. I'm going to reach out right now. I want you at home to know my hand is touching your hand for this gathering of the biggest body of people in, in this universe all over the world now. Reach it out because the love that was given me and this time I will repay you now because I will be the next world's heavyweight champion on this hard time blues Dusty Rhodes Tour 885 and Rick Flair Nature Boy let me leave you with this one way To hurt Ric Flair is to take what he cherishes more than anything in the world. That's the world's heavyweight title. I'm gonna take it, I've been there twice. This time when I take it, daddy, I'm gonna take it for you. Let's gather for it. Don't let me down now, cause I came back for you, for that man up there that died 10, 12 years ago and never got the opportunity to see a real Wolf champion. And I'm proud of you, and thank God I have you. And I love you.
1: Love you! Uh, I don't think you could say it any better than the American dream Dusty Rhodes said it there. And with one promo, and with one run at the title, uh, both Starcade 85 and then followed by the Great American Bash, he really spoke for all these workers which found themse- who found themselves disenfranchised. You know, it was one of those moments where... Um, Maybe some people, maybe some blacks in this country felt this way when Hank Aaron broke the home run record. But other than the fictional boxing match between Rocky Balboa and Ivan Drago, I don't know that there were many other instances in sports or sports entertainment where a performer and look, that's what athletes are. They're performers where performers so embodied the spirit of their fans and the spirit of the people they were representing, and it's funny. I think Dusty Rhodes, in giving voice to the concerns of the textile workers who found themselves replaced, as he said it, by a computer, uh, and he said, uh, "Give him a gold watch, kick him in the butt," and said, "You know, a computer done took your place, Daddy." Now they don't even give you the gold watch, but I don't think, personally. That the mistreatment of American workers by corporations, the government, the system, whatever case you want to make, I don't think that's any excuse for poor manners. And ultimately, I don't care whether you're working from home or whether you work in person somewhere seven days a week. I think these no show, no call situations are inexcusable. I find the. Ghosting of an employer before you start your job? Absolutely inexcusable. What do you think? 800 848 9222. We'll continue with your calls in a minute. We have two open lines if you want to jump on board. 1 800 848 WABC. This is the other side of midnight, straight ahead.
0: This is the other side of midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC.
1: jackson singing say 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 you know it's interesting about this song not only is this a great song um but you know when paul mccartney and michael jackson were collaborating on this song paul mccartney and who knows how much of this is true but i mean i guess paul mccartney does but paul mccartney evidently advised michael jackson to learn from his mistakes and invest in music publishing because the Beatles had missed out on a lot of money because they didn't own all of their own songs or the publishing rights to it. So in 1985, Michael Jackson purchased the publishing rights to almost all of the Beatles' catalog for $47 million. He outbid Paul McCartney himself. Paul McCartney found himself in a bidding war with Michael Jackson after giving Michael Jackson that financial advice. And I will tell you, Michael Jackson made a lot more than $47 million through these Beatles songs, not to mention his own songs. All right. Uh, talk a little bit about the modern day workplace. And uh, I don't think you could say it any better than Dusty Rhodes did it there. And according to D- Dave from Dumont, uh, apparently called in, he said that um, don't believe the conspiracy theorists or the hype men that Dusty Rhodes was six foot one. He's, uh, he's saying apparently that uh, Dusty Rhodes was actually only five foot seven, uh, as he continues to disprove all these wrestlers' heights. Steve is in Manhattan. Hello, Steve.
3: I'm going to get you, Bruno.
19: I'm going to get you, Bruno. Superstar Billy Graham calling out Bruno San Martino. Yeah, no, those wrestlers were big dudes. I went to a few wrestling matches myself through the years. Um, first of all, Frank, you live the life of Riley. You have your dream job and you're best friends with the owner. I mean, there, there could be no better situation than that. And you live in Candyland down in Staten Island, which is good. You don't take the four, tra- you don't get on the six train in Midtown to the four train, go uptown to the Bronx late at night, because then you would have it there. You would be singing, I love New York. Now the thing with the um, the atomic power plants and everything, I just like to do a little movie review and critic here. I, after what you did with that, uh, the atomic plants, I would tell people, to watch the movie China Syndrome and followed up with the hunt for Red October. I think you like those two movies. And the China Syndrome was already in the theater when Three Mile Island hit. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was the, that's the genesis, folks, for the atomic plants uh, closing. Yeah, I think they could use a few atomic plants out in California. They always have these, what they call these rolling brownouts, where they have to sh- shut the power down to protect the system. I mean, we're already in the 21st century. We can't deliver power but California is different because they're insisting on taking the world's poor so they got their own problems out there and um, also the uh, Shoreham power plant was closed down in New York because of Three Mile Island and Chernobyl hit and that was the end of Shoreham you weren't going to see Shoreham opened but there was something that did come out it was called the No New Concerts now I'm sure the kids in that time period that went to those concerts Most of them probably wanted to just see the accent they were young kids. Some of them might have been politically active. There's always kids that way. But there was no atomic fallout from that. But I can tell you, the kids left with good old Yankee, good old American pollution. There was Jack Daniel bottles all over the place, Southern Comfort bottles all the way, beer cans all over the place. They're worried about the environment. They left, left the place into a pigsty. Now, when it comes to Zoom meetings, Frank, my opinion is I think it's the greatest thing in the world that people are allowed to work at home. I've said for years people they, – they they had the technology they could have done this 10, 20 years ago. My own opinion was that the big office managers wanted to cherry-pick the beautiful women. They didn't want anybody staying home. That
1: well, makes sense. And,
19: Right, and remember, uh, today people don't really get pensions. Some people don't get health care. There's no loyalty. Like years ago, people were worried about losing their pension. That's why they would hang around a job. I know people do get vested in the system. There are laws that protect them. But still, they have no loyalty, so they leave. But today, I really believe if you are really good from home, you could pull it off and work from multiple corporations. Oh, no, well, uh, we've done that.
1: We've done that. We've done that story. People are doing that. Absolutely, that's happening. By the way, I really want to know what's going on with Verizon because I have noticed for the last two weeks that – and our equipment is working fine. It's all state-of-the-art, modern equipment, and we reset the whole phone system yesterday, which is why apparently I was not able to do my interview with Bill O'Reilly. But for the last two weeks, I've noticed – that when guests and callers connect with us, they, they, the the line crackles. It's like they'll be talking and then all of a sudden you'll hear if uh, interruption. Like you're at the um, takeout counter at a, a McDonald's restaurant. And I have raised this repeatedly. And I know they're trying to address it. But where is Verizon? I don't know how Verizon is allowing a, one of the, and I'm sure we pay a lot of money to them. But I don't know how they're allowing one of the most powerful radio stations in the country, the most listened to talk station in the country, to have people call in and not be heard. It's very irritating, I must say. Eight hundred eight four eight wabc TUNA in Forest Hills. Hello. Hey, I uh, just want to say,
6: you know, about the
5: whole work. I don't know. It seems like worse ethic. Uh, I was in Union Construction, and not that I was a local three electrician, but if you look at Harry Van Arsdale, Jr., if you look out of the way, he set everything up. He used to go to work in a suit and tie
10: mm.
5: and perform, you know, get on a ladder and put up pipe and run electric and stuff like that. Like, you know, uh, and the working from home, if you're good at it, yeah. But you see, the, the caller before said that her office was laxy. Like, you don't have to call in sick. I don't know what we're doing to this, I guess, millennial generation, but we're we're going to have a bunch of marshmallows. I mean, that was part of the hype when you had to call in sick. You know, if you call in sick, you had to have a good story. You had to get you, get your story together, and that was like a reward. And then you know, you can't say your fish died, but you would come up with a good one. People wrote books on excuses have to go to work, uh, but it, I, I enjoy. You know, you get into your routine. You know, you had your buddies, you see, you you know, you deal a routine, you appreciate the weekends, and sometimes you grab the overtime on the weekends if it's there. You know, if I was hiring, uh, I think I'd pick the guy with kids instead of the single guy. You know, married, new guy, he's got little babies. You know, he's hungry, he needs his job. Uh, It just seems like these other millennials were raising marshmallows. Well, I you know, know.
1: I, I think – and thanks for the call, Tuna. I don't know how much of it is a reflection of lack of work ethic and how much is a reflection of how technology has changed the workplace culture. Because, um, you know, we have a couple of people working here that are young people. Uh, Philippe, I think, is actually Generation Z. And uh, he actually, as, as, you know, hard as it, it might be for many of us to believe, he is actually a pretty good worker – both in terms of job performance and effectiveness. And even Alex Barnard, who's usually here, uh, the same can be said. Now, um, so I don't think there's – maybe it's different in a field that it's as competitive as radio, but I don't think it's as simple as the millennials or, as I like to call them, the millenniums. I I don't think it's as as simple as the millenniums just not wanting to work. I I think it's how working from home and hybrid working – Has changed the culture and that now something that would have been unthinkable years ago, ghosting or these no call, no work, no call, no show instances. Is now common, I think, people, because they're not going to the office, they're not feeling a connection with their workplace. Jay in Brooklyn, what say you? Yes. Hi.
20: Good morning why do people ghost people ghost because they feel unappreciated they see because a new worker which you know would be called a rookie comes in because they have a and because they have a connection to a certain um supervisor that's high ranking um they get promoted automatically before the person that's been there for years you know people just feel You know, what's the sense? Sometimes you just need a day off, man, you know, just to get away from all the BS, you know?
1: Yeah, I I guess that's uh, becoming the norm, uh, Jay. I mean, have you done this?
20: No, I haven't done it. I haven't done it directly like that.
1: Okay. All right. Well, have you done it indirectly?
20: Um sometimes you just want to get away from your boss too, you know, like you Uh, go to to work and let's
1: say you're right, Jay. Right. And I, I I, I think you're exactly right. Um, Mm. and I've been in that position with certain employers and Mm. in those cases, there is something that's somewhat satisfactory, about writing a letter listing all of your grievances and specifically citing how you feel unappreciated. And I've done that with employer, and I was probably a little too harsh in that one instance. And I gave them this letter of resignation where I said this and that and this. And um, one, I found it kind of cathartic, and I, I was happy that at least someone else was reading that. And I, I found it much more satisfying than simply not showing up.
20: In this modern era, no one wants to write their grievances anymore because of all the backlash that will follow. So it's just better to just either you just you know just call out sick and bring in the doc, fake it, fake it till you make it.
1: All right, Jay. Thank you. Um, Ed is in New Jersey. Hello, Ed.
9: Hi, Mike. It's uh,
1: the milkman. Oh, wonderful.
9: How you doing?
1: Yeah, I would hate for you to ghost me while I'm expecting a dairy delivery.
9: Never
15: happen. We yeah, never miss a delivery. 50 years.
1: You know, um, you should you should bring some milk over to uh, James Cromwell's apartment just to see him go nuts. <laughs>
9: okay, <laughs> I um, I think part of the problem
16: is these kids come out of school; they don't even know how to interact with other people.
1: Yes, so y- it's
16: just okay not to show up, or you know, and and. It's hard to get help. So I think
19: employers kind of live with it a little bit instead of, you know, there's there's no consequence for
12: not
1: calling, not showing up. You know, you're, you know? Ex- you're exactly right. Ed. That's a great point. That's one that I wish I would have mentioned. You know, I've done these segments and we may do another one next week with this fellow, Bob Wolf, and he teaches what they call soft skills, which are skills related to interpersonal rea- um, interaction. And those skills are lacking, you know, um, and decorum, I find, is lacking. I, I, I do think that's true. I do think that's a good point. I uh, will take one more call on this, and then we'll move on to other subjects. Steve is in New Jersey. Hello, Steve.
3: Hey, good morning, Frank. I think the workplace problem is almost a change in society. Um, people aren't used to being under pressure. From a young age now, when kids play sports. They give everybody a trophy. Everybody's a winner. And then the day comes that they go into the real world and I work for one of the world's largest shipping companies as Brown trucks and they're used to putting a lot of pressure on their employees. And I had a conversation with one of my, one of my managers after someone left and I said, listen, you can't yell at snowflakes because they may melt and you may see them again.
1: Well, so what you're saying is uh, that because, uh, you know, people's feelings are so tender these days that that, that this is what, hap- what the byproduct of that is at the workplace?
3: People are sensitive. And mm-hmm. from a young age, like it's you have to have a little bit of discipline, and you have to have to have to be used to having consequences for your action. And when people learn from a young age that there's no responsibility and they have to go out to function in the real world, it makes it really hard. And before I let you go, I just wanted to give you a small Dusty Rhodes tribute. You can indulge me.
1: Yeah, sure, please.
3: I'll make you back quack, you little quiver. If you don't think this mess, you're at the wrong address. It's time to get funky like a monkey for Frank Marano.
1: Well, well done, Steve. Well done. Uh, well done. The American dream would be proud. Well done. Uh, too sweet to be sour. Very, very nice. I like that. All right. On that note, I can't top that. So uh, we'll move on. 800-848-WABC. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. If you ever want to know what uh, bumper music we play on this show or who the artist is, uh, all you have to do is join our Facebook group, uh, and we post the songs in there each and every morning right after the show. Uh, Just go on Facebook and search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. Or if you want to type directly, go to Facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. And... um, It's meant to be a forum for people to discuss this show and the subjects that we cover on this show. Uh, So if you want to make a remark about anything that we have done on this show, that's the place to do it. Now, a couple of things. I don't watch a lot of television programs. I don't really have time to watch a lot of television programs. It takes me years to catch up with most television programs. In fact, uh, you know what I'm watching right now? And I'm enjoying it, I must say. uh, The West Wing. The West Wing's been off the air for what, what 13 years, maybe more, 14 years. And I'm just now getting around to watching it. That's how far behind I am on things. But one of the shows that my wife and I do watch is The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And I've had it on my list all week to comment on it. And I uh, we just finished season four. And I did like it. I did like it. It's not nearly as strong as the first two seasons. Probably better than the third season. It's still very funny. And the um, acting by the star of this show, Rachel Brosnahan, as Midge, is very impressive. She has such a great sense of comedic timing. And her interactions with the other actors on the show is really terrific. You know what it was? I found that the story... For her, this particular season was pretty lacking. She really wasn't the center of any key story arc. Instead, she was just sort of reacting to what was happening towards everything else. And I won't give any spoilers away, but there's also a couple of decisions that her character makes, which are really just inexplicable and not really explained on the show. So I liked it, though. If you haven't seen Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, uh, I suggest that you watch it from the beginning. It's available on uh, Amazon Prime. Uh, It was still a very amusing season, still shot beautifully. I love anything that's shot in New York. I think that's one of the really, the key reasons that I love the show Billions so much is because it's fun to see them walk down the street and say, oh, I know that place, I know that place, oh, I work right next door to there. And even though Marvelous Mrs. Maisel depicts a New York in the late 50s and early 60s, it's still New York. It's still, it's still fun. It's still interesting. So um, I thought it was good, but not, not great uh, as far as I'm concerned. The other show that I've been watching, and I haven't finished the most recent season yet, I think I have one episode left, and you know what a big Star Trek fan I am, is the television series Picard. Now, I've been saying for years that I have way too many streaming services. But the problem is, as I said to uh, Michael Hawk yesterday, they all have one show that you really need to watch. And then once you have it, you figure, all right, I'll just keep it. And so that was the case with Paramount Plus and Picard. It was originally called CBS All Access. And when I saw that Patrick Stewart was coming back to play Captain Picard, I said, whoa. I mean, that's something that's like. Connery coming back to play James Bond. It's like Arnold Schwarzenegger coming back to play the Terminator. So uh, I said, all right, I I got to watch. And then I saw the trailer before season one, and I was blown away. And even my brother, Nicholas, who is one of the most cynical people there is, I'm convinced he only keeps watching all these Star Trek series so that he can complain that he doesn't like any of them. He, when I showed him the trailer to Picard before the first season, he would say, okay, that does look cool. So I've been watching the second season. And look, uh, Patrick Stewart is great and everything. I have to tell you, I'm not loving the story of the second season. I don't know if any of you other Star Trek fans are feeling differently. But I find the whole um, story arc of this second season... Very played out and very generic. I, I mentioned before that I think one or two of the episodes are way too woke. They have this one episode where they're demonizing ICE agents. I just, it's like, come on. Star Trek was always above that whole thing. So I um, I like it still because, look, at Star Trek, you got Jerry Ryan in there. She's phenomenal. Patrick Stewart is great. It's always fun to see the Borg, even if it's utilized a little weirdly. But I just feel like every episode, it's just derivative and repetitive of stuff that has been done so many times before in the Star Trek universe. Oh, another time travel story. Whoa. Oh. another, uh, we have to go back and fix the timeline story. Whoa it's I, I don't see anything really special about this season and then they have all, one episode that you know takes place basically in one of picard's dreams i mean what a waste of some great actors so i'm not loving this season of picard that is my um my take now part of the reason that i don't get to watch much television is because i don't have much time not only Uh, You know, it takes time to do this show, takes time to drive to here, drive to work, takes time a few hours a day at least to sleep, takes time to prepare for the show. And then, you know, being a husband and father does take a substantial amount of time as well. So you don't end up with time to do much else. Um, And that has led me in the last couple of weeks to do something I never thought that I would do. You know what I did last Sunday night into Monday morning. I put all the recyclables in our house out to the front, out out to the curb for the sanitation folks to take. Now, why is that a big deal? Don't people do that every day? Wow. Nope, Nope, I don't do it. What I have been doing for decades is all of the cans and bottles that have a deposit, I would take them all to the grocery store. And then any other recyclables that would um, not have a deposit, I put those out to the curb. But I've now found that my time is so lacking that I'm not able to make the trip to the grocery store to redeem these cans and bottles. And my wife has spoken to my mother as well, apparently, who used to give me her cans and bottles so I could redeem my mother's cans and bottles as well, and said, you know, Frank is not going to the grocery store enough, and they just end up sitting in our garage looking ugly. Please don't give him any more cans and bottles. So now my mother is not giving me any more cans and bottles. So last Sunday was the first day that I didn't take the time to sort all the recyclables and separate the ones that have the deposit from the ones that don't. And I put everything out to the curb, and I also put the cardboard out and the garbage, and it takes a whole process. And it's Sunday night about 10 o'clock, and there's this uh, Asian gentleman who is going around to everybody's trash, and he's taking out all of the bottles that have the deposit because I guess what he does is he gets them before the sanitation people do, and then he takes them to the grocery store, and he redeems them. And then as he's on our block, I see him opening my clear plastic bag from my recyclables and removing the cans and bottles that have the deposit. And all I could think was how angry I was. I mean, he was very polite about it. He said, thank you. And he made sure there was no mess. He retied the bag and everything. All I could think was how irked I was that, in my view that was my money that's being taken and cashed in by someone else so uh, this week i don't care if i have to go with a little less sleep i'm going to make an effort to to get back to the grocery store and redeem these these recyclables because it was it was like somebody i hate to use this analogy but seeing that gentleman who again i want to stress he was doing nothing wrong he was uh you know, absolutely, I'd rather him get the money than nobody, but seeing that gentleman take my cans and bottles, the bottle, the vitamin waters that my wife has drank, the zevias that I've consumed, the bubbly that I've consumed, and stockpile them and know that he was going to make $12 a day from all these recyclables instead of me – it was almost like watching someone sleep with your girlfriend. Ah! It was very painful. So, um, I have to come come up with a more organized plan for being being able to get to the grocery store to return these cans and bottles because I hated seeing that guy take my recyclables, knowing that he was going to redeem them. I got to get back there. Got to do it, and I'll find a way a way to do it. All right, coming up next. Have you been following this story of this? inmate that ran away with this correction officer a sad story indeed we'll talk about it next until next hour your influence counts so use it
0: this is the other side of midnight with frank morano they run in a strange program y'all talk radio 77 wabc now here's frank morano
1: the other side of midnight i'm frank moreno have you been following this story of vicky and casey white so casey white was is a uh, a capital murder suspect who escaped from an alabama jail last week and evidently he was aided in his escape by a correction officer Vicky White no relation they just both happen to have the same name and uh this very sad this whole story came to an end this week when Vicky White there was a a police chase in Indiana and it ended in a car crash so the ex corrections officer who's accused of helping this guy escape from jail, Vicki White, 56 years old, was pronounced dead after, according to the murder suspect, Casey White, she killed herself. They were about to be apprehended, and she killed herself. So the U.S. Marshal Service said that when Casey White came out of the car, he exclaimed... Please help my wife. He was referring to her as his wife. Please help my wife. She just shot herself in the head and I didn't do it. Um, So while the and they're going to do a full autopsy to see if that checks out. But all indications are she did kill herself. I find this story very bizarre. For starters, I mean, I know it can be difficult to meet somebody to meet a guy if you're a woman and you're into the opposite sex. But I am perplexed at how often it seems that correction officers end up falling in love with the people that are in their custody. And I know some of these guys can be very charming. I'm sure some of them are very handsome. But this is what happened at Danamora State Prison at the Clinton Correctional Facility, at uh, Danamora. The woman there, Tilly, she basically fell in love with two inmates there and helped them escape. Here in Menha- in uh, Brooklyn, at the MDC, cop killer Ron L. Wilson impregnated one of his jailers. And I just think what goes on a- in these women's heads, and I'm sure it goes on with male correction officers at female facilities as well. I know people are working a lot, and I know it could be difficult to to meet someone. And look, I understand lust. I'm not excusing it, but I get it. Um, you know, just sometimes your hormones get the better of you. I can understand, and I'm not condoning it, not excusing it, and it's as illegal as they come, but I can understand having sex with an inmate that you're guarding, that you're attracted to. Okay. I understand it. What I can not understand is being so brainwashed by one of these inmates that you're willing to risk your entire career and your freedom and life as you know it. And in the case of Vicki white, your whole life literally for Helping out a murder suspect or anybody else for that matter. I just don't get it. And, you know, I've said this before, and this is politically as incorrect as can be. I've said this before. I think if I were in charge, and I'm sure this would require legislation, and I'm sure it's inappropriate, and certainly not PC. I don't think you should have correction officers of the opposite gender guarding inmates of the opposite gender. And look, I know that uh, a woman can have sex with a woman and fall in love with a woman. I know that a man can do the same with a man. I think you'd see many fewer instances of this if you didn't have a bunch of guys who were deprived of female companionship staring at their female correction officer as if she's a boxed lunch when she comes down uh, to do her rounds. And I and then I think you'd see many fewer instances of this, and I've believed that for years. Ever since that Ron L. Wilson, the cop killer, impregnated his jailer, uh, I've always thought this was a di- recipe for disaster. And I think this is proven right again here. So, give me your take on this. Maybe you think there's more to this than meets the stu- meets the eye here. What do you think? Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. It's a sad story. Because clearly this woman had issues, um, but um, I find this bizarre. This former correction officer, Vicky White, attractive looking woman, 56 years old, relatively young, shoots herself in the head and dies after helping this inmate escape jail. I think it's a terrible story and a curious one Um they had this jailhouse romance. But why would she do this? Why would she risk everything to help this man who's facing a murder charge and a 75-year jail sentence on other offenses? Maybe there's more to it. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Casey White told investigators that he and Vicky stopped in Evansville, Indiana to get their bearings straight and then figure out their next place to travel. They booked a hotel room for two weeks in the area. They have a surveillance video from a car wash where they switched vehicles. And it's not clear if they were, in fact, married while they were fugitives, but he referred to her as his wife, so they at least considered themselves married. So the Vandenberg County coroner did rule her death a suicide. So um, he apparently was ready to start shooting at the cops. But the fact that his car flipped over during the car chase prevented him from doing that. So there is dash cam video from the Evansville Police Department that's been released. And it shows several armed law enforcement officials dragging Casey White on the ground away from the flipped car. And the video shows them pinning uh, White down before walking him handcuffed to a police car and holding him against it. But in the body camera footage of the first responders taking this woman, Vicki white from the car, officers remove a gun from her hand before putting, putting her out. It's a sad situation. Um, I don't know. 800, If you want to comment on a much more upbeat note and a much less consequential note, Have you heard the promo that we've been running? I actually think it's a pretty good promo. Uh, If you haven't heard it, because you listen to the podcast and they take out some of the commercials, this is the promo that I'm referring to.
0: Did you know that people listen to people that listen to us? This is Talk Radio 77 WABC.
1: Now, I think it's pretty effective, and I think it's true. Now, I talked about how Obi-Murray listens to this show on a regular basis, and uh, so do a lot of uh, people in government and uh, other walks of life, okay? People listen to people That listen to us now more than one person has remarked in the Facebook group and if you want to join the Facebook group you could do so Moreno radio fans and haters on Facebook to search that more than one person has said that the promo should not say people listen to people that listen to us some folks have said that the promo should say People listen to people who listen to us. So I got to say, I think that makes some sense. Doug Douglas was the first person to mention that in the Facebook group. So we're having a, a big meeting tomorrow night, a, more of a social meeting. But um, I mean, all the big wigs from the station are going to be there. The program director, the president. I'm imagining John and Margo are going to be there. And I'm wondering if I should raise this. People listen to people that listen to us. That's what it says now. Should I say, hey, psst. I think it's supposed to be people listen to people who listen to us. Or if I do that, do I become the kid in class that says, oh, teacher, you know, it's pronounced Arkansas, not Arkansas. I don't know. What do you think? 800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. If you want to comment on the case of Vicky White... Uh, And my solution, more generally, that um, you should have to have people of the same gender guarding one another in prisons and jails. Or if you want to comment on people listen to people who listen to us versus people who listen to people that listen to us. 800-848-WABC, seven open lines. Mike is in New Jersey. Hello, Mike.
13: Hi, good morning, Frank. Frank, I, I called about uh, the TV shows you've been watching, and um, I, I know you didn't watch it or haven't watched it. Uh, the Handmaid's Tale. And, I have. Uh, I, I, I couldn't.
5: Yeah, I haven't watched it.
13: I, I couldn't recommend it more. It's some of the most compelling TV I've, i think I've ever seen. It. It's just, and and it fits perfectly with what's going on right now with the pro abortion and, and the and the you know the Congress.
1: Today. Mike, are you uh, on a landline on by any chance, Mike?
13: I am on a landline. You
1: are on a landline. And yet your phone is gurgling like crazy. So I know it's not you. I know it's the you know the people at Verizon that are servicing our phone line. But you're giving a, um, just to reiterate in case anyone else had difficulty hearing you, you're giving a wholehearted recommendation to The Handmaid's Tale.
10: I highly
13: recommend it. And if you don't take the word for it, talk to someone who's seen the series um, it's a little funny at first to try to get into it. I started watching it, and then I was like, I don't think it's for me. And then I just bit the bullet and started watching it. And uh, it it's really keeps you on the edge of your seat. And it's it, it's a little disturbing um, wh- how they, you know, the inhumanity toward one another yeah. in this dystopian society.
1: Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. I've heard nothing but good things about that show. You know, the problem is not fi- is not difficulty in finding shows to watch i have a list of all sorts of shows that people have told me that i would love that i've never seen one minute of one episode of but uh, the problem is finding the time to watch these shows honestly uh, a lot of great shows on here that i've never seen game of thrones i've heard is great uh dexter uh walking dead the wire uh, all these shows that i've told is great Downton Abbey, The Blacklist, Shameless, Spartacus, Deadwood, um, 24. I've never seen any of these shows, but I'm told they're all really terrific. Um, but it's just, you know, I don't have the time at this point. All right. Um, 1-800-848-WABC. If you want to weigh in on Vicki White, uh, open phone lines now so you'll be able to get through. And uh, two, if you want to comment on whether it should be people, listen to people, who listen to us or people listen to people that listen to us? Uh, both of those are fair game for discussion. Meantime, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Frank Moreno. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. I want to remind you that uh, today on the 77 WABC Early News, you can hear part two of Deb Valentine's exclusive interview with John Paul Mac Isaac, we're still trying to find out why he has four names. Two or three wouldn't suffice. Um, but once they get past that, they're going to cover why you know his experience fixing Hunter Biden's laptop. Hunter Biden dropped off his laptop computer with John Paul, Mac Isaac. He said, all right, you've got Mac in your name. I'll leave you my laptop to fix. And this fella discovers all sorts of weird stuff on there, uh, compromising photos, compromising videos, financial documentation, and um, it's created quite a bit of controversy. And some people are even speculating there might be criminal charges that result from the discovery of what's on this laptop. So we'll see. It's going to be very interesting, but uh, you're going to get to hear um, Deb Valentine's Exclusive interview with John Paul Mac Isaac, uh, but yesterday was quite interesting. I listened on the way home, and I'm looking forward to hearing what he has to say today. If you want to email me on uh, any subject, you can do so at frank at wabcradio.com. That's frank m o r a n o at wabcradio.com. I got an email here from a fella named Elliot. I'm not going to give his last name, but he says. um Always like listening to your show today. You touched on something which has me has haunted me since retiring. I worked for a New Jersey school system for 47 years when I submitted my retirement papers at a public board of education meeting. Not one member said thank you for your almost half a century work for the children of this district. In addition, I taught at a New Jersey university for over 25 years and a county college for over 30 years. Upon submitting my retirement papers to these higher institutions, not one thank you, question mark, question mark. Perhaps payment, as all these educational institutions believe, is enough. Thank goodness I provided my students with greater empathy and respect. That is awful. I am sorry to hear that, Elliot. Um, well, I will say thank you. Thank you, Elliot, for your nearly half a century of contributions to making um, young people's lives better. Richer and more fulfilled and informed. And I'm sorry that uh, neither of your employers thought it was worthy of uh, of them to say thank you. we Will say thank you. Thank you. M- Mikey is in central New Jersey. Hello, Mikey.
8: Hey, Frank. What's up?
1: You tell me, pal.
8: Dark Side of the Ring, Wrestler Series, Vice Challenge. You ever see it?
1: I don't believe so. No.
8: It's excellent. A lot of wrestlers, were, they were Canadian. And... uh. When they ended their careers, they was in turmoil. Some of them committed suicide. They killed their wives or child. But also a short wrestling question: In the film *Stir Crazy*, starring Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor, who played Grossberger in the cafeteria?
1: Um, uh, you know uh, that Grossberger in *Stir Crazy*? I'm gonna have to look that one up. I could picture him. He's bald. Um, I don't yeah. know. I don't know who it is.
3: It's not King Kong Bundy. I thought it was.
1: No, 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 no. No way.
3: It looks like him, but he's bigger.
1: Yeah, I just looked this up. Um, uh, his name was Erlen Van Lith DeJude. That's
3: very good. I
1: just looked it up. I didn't oh, know it, uh, so I don't want to take any credit. You. And apparently he had a, uh, a very big collegiate wrestling
3: career.
8: That's right. He did. That's very good. Uh, you got to watch Dark Side of the Ring, ladies and gentlemen, out there. And Frank, it's, it's a great series. I'm not a big wrestling fan, but it's really cool and very well produced.
1: All right. Well, thank you, Mikey. Bobby is here in New York. Hello, Bobby.
11: Hey, Frank. Uh, Good morning. How are you? I'm hanging in there. Thanks. Good. Listen, uh, this is just something that you didn't mention that I I heard on the news that that uh, the corrections officer White that she she broke him out of jail on the day she was supposed to
1: retire. You're kidding me. No. That makes this even more inexplicable to me. I just don't get it. it, I I mean, maybe she couldn't be away from this guy. He had some sort of Svengali-like hold on her.
11: I guess it was crazy. But the other thing is uh, uh, the commercial you showed before about people listening to people. I think it should be who?
1: I'll be honest, that's the way That's the way I think it should be as well. Should I bring this up with upper management? I, I, I would, yeah. because it's center. It does. It does. Yeah, it now does. That, of course it does. Now that somebody has pointed this out to me, it really does hit my ear wrong every time I hear it.
11: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Who? who is definitely better? Right. Right. Well, thank you. Bro. All right. One. Yeah, go ahead. All right, one other thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talked about uh, watching TV shows. One was the Western Deadwood or something.
1: Yeah, I ne- I've never seen it. Never seen it. Uh,
11: no. OK. A good one. If you ever want to watch it, want to watch it, It's called Hell on Wheels. It was about them building the railroad across the United States.
1: Okay, I'll put it on my list, Bobby. I'll be honest, though. My list is rapidly expanding, and nothing's getting crossed off. So I don't know when I'm going to have a chance. I always say, and thanks for the call, Bobby, I've always said, if I guess a lot of people did this during COVID who worked from home. I never did this. Um, but I've always said, if I'm ever independently wealthy or unemployed, I'm just going to watch television. Or watch all these TV shows cross one off my list after another. But um, it's not something I have the time for at the moment. Now, uh, by the way, if you are in the TV watching game, I um, will suggest that you tune into Newsmax TV at 9.30. Why? Because my um, wife, Rachel, is actually going to be on at nine thirty five five hours from now talking about the baby formula shortage. So um, that's going to be interesting. I'm not sure what she's going to say other than it's difficult to buy baby formula. I'm not sure what policy prescriptions she's going to recommend to solve this. I said, well, I mean, I know Newsmax is conservative. Are you going to blame Joe Biden for it? She says, no, I don't know if Joe Biden's to blame. I don't know. I'm just going to answer their questions. So we'll see. For those of you that want to hear and see my wife, Rachel, tune into her at uh, 930. Now, um, so that's that. Uh, be, be advised. And then um, we'll be back tomorrow. Tomorrow is actually a pretty big day for Sky watching. So I'm going to talk with um, Dr. Sky. He's going to join us in the first hour. And then M- Jeremy Murphy is supposed to be here. He's the uh, author of that book, F Off, Chloe. And – um I'm looking forward to uh, maybe even bring up with him some of these same some of these same issues that we've been talking about uh, with you. So that's that. All right, um, we're going to do the thousand dollar minute since no one else wants to comment on this Vicky White situation. Um, we'll do the thousand dollar minute next. If you want to try to win a thousand dollars and by answering ten questions in sixty seconds, then be the seventh caller right now. To 1-800-848-WABC, that's 1-800-848-9222, that's 1-800-848-WABC, um, you can try and answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, and if you can do it, you will be the proud recipient of $1,000 American.
20: Tell me we are through Don't you ever hurt me if you do Everything they're saying will be true People say
1: the dixie cops uh if you ever want to know what music we play just join the facebook group on facebook search morano radio fans and haters uh and that's a, meant to be a forum for talking about this show and we encourage everybody to contribute uh whether you have positive things to say not such positive things to say questions about any topics that we've dealt with uh, any articles that you want to share about um uh about what we're doing on there go ahead and uh, and do that Uh, And if you just want to join our plain old regular Facebook page, go to Facebook.com slash Morano Fan. All right. The time has come for one lucky person to try and test their wits. And if they can answer 10 questions in 60 seconds, they will be $1,000 wealthier. It's time for
0: The Other Side of Midnight presents. It's the Thousand Dollar Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank
1: Morano. Yes, let's meet today's contestant, Jay in the Poconos. Hello, Jay.
15: Good morning, Frank.
1: Do you live in the Poconos, Jay? Yes, I do. How do you like living over there?
15: I love
1: it. Oh, You know, my Uncle Jimmy... Uh, lived in the Poconos before he passed away. Did you know him at all? No. No, okay. All right, well, he's quite a guy. He's, let me tell you. back there
15: like three years ago. We used to live in Seattle.
1: Oh, okay. All right, well, he had been gone, um, you know, as of, uh, I think, about uh, 10 years ago now. Hard to believe. But are um, you familiar with this game, Jay?
15: Yes, I hear it every morning.
1: Wonderful. Okay, I won't bother explaining the rules to you. I will just reiterate, don't get nervous. Number one, Number two, the timer will begin after I ask the first question. And three, it, when you get a question right, we're just going to move on to the next question. Uh, ready to go? Yes. All right. What is... Oh, excuse me. Let me rephrase that. Name a cereal. Cheerios. What is the biggest park in Manhattan? Central Park. Who was the voice of Darth Vader on Star, in Star Wars?
15: James Earl Jones.
1: What financial entity sets the prime interest rate? The Fed. What continent touches North America? South America. What annual horse race took place on Saturday?
15: Kentucky Derby.
1: Who is the owner of WABC? Catch the what is the best selling album of all time?
15: Michael Jackson Thriller.
1: Who was the last Russian czar?
10: Uh boy, that's a
1: good one. Uh Dimitri. No, that's incorrect. We're out of time. Well, you got eight eight correct. You were doing really well. Um the last Russian czar was Nicholas. Nicholas II, second. But we would have even taken Nicholas. Oh, yeah. But okay. I will tell you, Jay, um you did well. You answered eight questions correct. So uh, that entitles you under the John Katsimatidis rule, the person you correctly named, that entitles you to a hundred dollars.
15: Terrific. It was it was really on the line. I have a my dog is in an ICU for the last week and it's uh we're up to about twelve thousand dollars because she got tetanus
1: Oh well, I, I hate to hear that, and I'm going through a, a I'm going through a similar situation with uh, my cat right now, Jay. And I know yeah. the these vet bills, how crippling they are. Uh, so I'm sorry yeah, yeah. we couldn't help you out, and but maybe when we play Queen for a day, we can we you can come back with your story again. Yeah, that would be great. All right, Jay. Um, good luck with your dog. Uh, I hope he uh, well, hope he gets yeah. better soon.
3: We're in the corner, I think.
1: I hope so. I hope so. I'm going to put you on hold, thank Jay, you. and uh, and give Avery your number, and uh, don't let him shortchange you on that 100 bucks.
3: Okay, thank you.
1: Thank you, Jay, and good luck with that talk. Those vet bills, they are just crazy. They absolutely are just crazy. And uh, I've talked about this before. In the case of our cat, Melchizedek, who we now have to take to another veterinarian, a specialist, on Monday in New Jersey... Um, he's not eligible for pet insurance because he has pre-existing conditions. Isn't it interesting Obamacare only applies to people. Doesn't even apply to pets. Why 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 can you discriminate against a pet with a pre-existing condition but not a person? And where are all the advocates for single payer pet insurance? Single payer pet care.
3: Um
1: I don't know. This is a subject for another day, I suppose. A uh, couple quick things. You by the way, you want to comment on anything we've discussed so far, from aliens to nukes to uh whatever, recycling, you can do so 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. So we're having this ratings dinner tonight. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to talk about this, but I'm going to mention it. You know, when we're, we're killing it in the ratings. Our our show was killing it. Dominic Carter, as you heard him mention, he's number 1. Rita Cosby's number one, and we're beating uh, Bill O'Reilly's number one. We're beating all of the competition in the news format and the news talk format and on the AM dial. And in the case of our show, we're beating everybody. We're beating them handily. So we're having sort of a celebratory dinner tonight with the station brass in, um, you know, in order to celebrate that. I'm looking forward to it. And it's not just it's not just nice to have a free dinner. But it's also nice because especially those of us that work on the overnight, we um, we don't really get to interact with a lot of our coworkers because we're out in Siberia here. So I'm looking forward to seeing everybody. But I'll tell you, every day I look at a like a countdown. I'm almost like Andy Dufresne in Shawshank prison. Right. Marking away the days uh, until until there's a next milestone. And every day. I look at when the next ratings book is going to come out because when it comes to radio the expression is somewhat true you're only as good as your last ratings book because you know you could be top of the hill one day and then or king of the hill one day and then just bottom of the heap the next and um my sister I was telling her she was over yesterday my sister Claudia and I said yeah I'm excited we have this ratings dinner tomorrow. All the on-air talent's going to be there. John and Margo are going to be there. It's going to be a lot of fun. And I said, oh, by the way, we're just five days away from the next ratings book. And Claudia said to me, well, what if the next ratings aren't good? I said, well, I hope they will be good. She says, but what if they're not? You're going to have this whole big dinner and then five days before the next ratings come out? And I said, well, yeah, I guess, I guess we will. So I guess the added we need the added that's a, an it'll be an added incentive to exceed the uh, in the next ratings book as well. Now, one person I really have to take issue with is a fella by the name of Mike Campbell. Now, Mike Campbell wrote this book about uh, Amelia Earhart, and he sent me the book. I, I wanted to interview him. And he sent me this book called Amelia Earhart, The Truth at Last. And I've been reading the book in anticipation of doing an interview. And um it's really interesting. And he had agreed to do an interview with me on Friday. Okay. Makes sense. Everybody following that so far? And then. He reaches out to me. We're all set time selected. And and meanwhile, if I book someone for an interview, that essentially means that I am not booking someone else in that place because it takes time to track these people down to be available at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. And so this fella emails me yesterday. And says, Frank. I've just been informed that you had Todd Swindell on your program recently, and I'm baffled as to why this is the fellow. The person he's talking about was the fellow that said um, Amelia Earhart lived her life in America as someone else. Uh, Miss Bolum. And he says, the Bolum as Earhart lie was debunked and put to bed long ago. Nobody rational takes it seriously anymore. How did you get involved with Swindell? And how is this going to affect your position going into our interview? Um, now, I said to him, I'm not involved with Swindell. I said, "I, um, I welcome people with all points of view. All theories. And, you know, uh, let people make their own decisions. And anyway, this guy, he says, forget it, Frank. I'm out. Swindell's lies are not points of view. Neither is the truth a point of view. The interview was canceled. So I was really annoyed at that guy for canceling this interview. And I remember, you know, I'm a big fan of Jesse Ventura. And Jesse Ventura, after he left being governor, used to have a TV show on MSNBC. Uh, it, it lasted only about three or four weeks. But the show was kind of interesting. It was weird, but it was interesting. And one day he was doing a show about the Kennedy assassination. He had on, he was going to have on someone who support, who it was, uh, you remember Scott McClellan, President Bush's former press secretary? It was Scott McClellan's father, this guy Barr McClellan, who I think has died, but he was a big JFK uh, conspiracy theorist. No, okay, but Barr McClellan is still alive. Okay, good for him. Let me put him on my list of people to interview. And he was a big JFK conspiracy theorist. And then he had on, uh, he was going to have a debate between Barr McClellan and some other guy that didn't believe that JFK was shot in a conspiracy. And then that guy refused. I don't remember who the author was. I would have told you. That guy refused to appear on a TV show with Barr McClellan. And Jesse Ventura, rightly so, said, well, that's crazy. And he named that guy the Dork of the Week. And so I don't, I have never named anyone the Dork of the Week. I mean, the closest we have to that is denunciations. But I am bringing back that title from Jesse Ventura. I'm borrowing it anyway. Um, and I am naming Mike Campbell the dork of the week. Because it's one thing if you screw up the time for an interview and you think it, we're talking Thursday morning when an, an, instead of Thursday night into Friday morning. It's another if you oversleep. It's another if it slips your mind. But for you to agree to an interview and then all of a sudden decide because of a previous guest that I've had on that you don't want to come on, you're a dork. And I am naming uh, Mike Campbell the dork of the week. Um, And, you know, at the time, I was, um, I was working, you know, part-time, I think I was an intern, at the Fox News Channel. And I was working on a, a special about the... John F. Kennedy assassination. And um, it was called JFK Case Not Closed. It was for the 40th anniversary, maybe thirty, Yeah, 40th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination. And I was talking with Peter Russo, one of the other producers there at the time. And he says, don't these people see that when so-called credible people refuse to come on a show All that means is that these people go unchallenged. And he's exactly right. So the fact that this audience will have only heard the Swindell theory and not this other guy's theory, I think, is so counterproductive to whatever this guy is trying to do. That's my two cents. All right. Rosa is in New Jersey. Hello, Rosa.
21: Hi. Uh, good morning, Frank. Morning. I just happened to get up, turn on the radio, and I heard Verizon. You were talking about Verizon. And for two, three or four weeks, I've been having problems, and I've called Verizon, and they said it's my phone. Meanwhile, I pay caller ID $12.15 for caller ID because of uh, my uh, sick husband, and that's why I got it because the phone calls. Never stop.
11: Mm.
21: Now, now I got this little screen on the on the new telephone, and all I get is line ringing. And they said it's the telephone. Once in a while, I might get a number screen, and Verizon is one of the, is the worst telephone company. I I wish they would bring back Bell because I never had a problem with those people. And I mean, when you tra- pay. $12.15 is bad enough. They raised 100% the flat rate, because um, this is, I have my landline phone only, uh, $25.45.
1: Well, first of all, Rosa, I'm sorry that you've gone through that experience. I will say, though, um I didn't hear your phone line drop out once. So maybe Verizon is getting the message from your complaints to them because this phone call to you it was impeccable. Your the phone integrity, the integrity of your line was was great. Um but best of luck with your your husband and dealing with Verizon. I know it's frustrating. By the way, Matt, it is Verizon that services our phone line. Right? Okay, I don't want to blame Verizon if T-Mobile is responsible. And I have to say, I have had pretty good experiences with Va- Verizon. As a mobile phone provider, whenever people call this show on a mobile phone and I can hear them, I know they're in a Verizon. They're on a Verizon phone. Whenever they call and they
17: sound,
1: then I know they're using something like T-Mobile or AT and T. So I'm not anti-Verizon. I'm pro things working. So. I just wish Verizon would get their act together here. Uh, I will tell you, whenever there's a big company like a Verizon or uh, some of these companies where it's impossible to even get someone on the phone, it's really irksome.
0: You know what really grinds my ideas?
1: This does. I find this really frustrating. Anne is in Manhattan. Hello, Anne.
21: Hi. So, Frank, you were talking to Jay. He was telling you a story about his poor animal, and you said to him, oh, well, we'll have you back when we do Queen for a Day. When do you do a Queen for a Day sub uh, topic? Do you do that, or was that just a real snarky remark you made to him? I would say it was
1: semi-snarky, but no, why don't we will do it? I, we will do it.
21: I, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, why not?
2: I, it it rubbed me the wrong way. I just thought it was bad for him. All right, well, no, well, okay, I, I, okay, I don't see,
1: have any reason why we wouldn't do it. Why not? Um, by the way, on Twitter... David, formerly David in Huntington, I think now he's David in the Bronx, David tweets at me, and you could tweet at me as well, at Frank Moreno. Every time I call for trivia, I'm number four for some reason. Anyway, how much competition do you have at this hour that's actually live? Well, that's true. I mean, I guess he's talking about the ratings. So I don't care. In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. I'm happy to be <laughs> number one with nobody else live except, um, you know, coast to coast.
18: I, I don't care.
1: Um, Avery, can you speak to that? Are you conspiring against allowing David to be a contestant on this uh, $1,000 Minute? No. All right. Uh, I'm convinced. You may not be, but I'm convinced. Mickey is in Pennsylvania. Hello, Mickey. How are you doing there, Frank?
5: You know, you talk about conspiracies, you know, and you're talking about the Kennedy. You know that John John wasn't flying the plane that night when he crashed. Did you know that?
1: We've done that actually. We've talked to some authors who believe uh that something else happened beyond the official story. We'll do it again around November, yeah, but, around his birthday.
3: But you know But you know who was flying it? Uncle who? Ted. He swam to shore to get
1: help. Uh, that's that's very funny. That's actually I don't find that funny. I mean, you're talking now not only making a joke about um Ted Kennedy, you're joking about the deaths of three people. Uh, I I Uh, It's not for me. You know, again, I hope Ann, who had a problem with my mild snarkiness, will reproach Mr. Mikey in Pennsylvania for his severe snarkiness. 800 848 WABC. Ron is in Michigan. Hello, Ron. Hi, Frank. Frank, with this uh, baby
8: formula shortage, shouldn't they be making uh, public announcements about uh, the importance of breastfeeding? I mean, what happened to the best form of baby? Uh, feeding in the world, and uh, I think it would be better for the babies and better for the mothers and better for
11: everybody.
1: Well, look, they, uh, they would... do they do push um, the breastfeeding. Uh, you know, um, Mike Bloomberg, when he was mayor, actually was hiding the baby formula from mothers. And um, not only, went, and I just went through this whole process five months ago, they really, really incentivize you uh, to breastfeed. For some people, it just is not a great fit for them, or some people make a different choice. Um, I can tell you, we tried. We went through this whole situation. We did try, and it just didn't work out. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Jeff is in Queens. Hello, Jeff.
17: Hey, Frank. A
5: couple things uh, on the on the prison escape. Yeah, well, that, that, I'm sure somebody has mentioned this. I haven't heard of them yet, so has no one mentioned the movie that was made several years ago. I forget the name of it, but it said, said in the Northeast. The exact same story, basically.
1: Well, I think it was Mora.
5: Da- okay, yeah I, I
1: mentioned it yeah
5: right of course so um anyway that's it's ironic how you know the same life imitates fictional or figure fiction or fiction or that this no is no like, but that was shit.
1: that wasn't that wasn't fictional that was real life
5: oh, Right, right 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 that's true that's true i, I was just saying life is sometimes just like fiction um and number two the cat insurance that has to happen frank this is outrageous what's what's how do how do we do that frank
1: you know, I don't know. I mean, the next, you know, I'm going to talk with my Congresswoman who is a dog lover. I'll talk to her. But you hear the story of that, of that. Fella Jay's dog, he's spending right. $12,000. I'm right. spending probably about $4,000. Who knows by the time right. we actually find out what's wrong with this cat? I'm going broke taking care of this right. cat. Jay is, um, you know, forced to compete on radio game shows to fund exactly. his dog's it's situation. A crime. It, it is. A real crime. It is. I agree. Something's okay. got to be done. And I don't hear, you know, it seems like, you know, for if, if James Cromwell is looking <laughs> for a cause to glue himself over, he should pick this one. Sankar is in Brooklyn. Hello, Sankar.
4: Yes. I, I heard the woman about the phone. I've been having this phone problem with Verizon off and on for 10 years. Right now, for, since December, I have no service on my phone. What they give me is a box to attach to electricity, and this is what I'm
3: using right now.
1: Well, I, I, you know, unfortunately, Sankar, I feel your frustration, but I don't think there's anything that I can do. I mean, again, I'm um, moonlighting with Verizon only on Saturdays and Sundays. So if you call me, I can't really do much to solve your Verizon issue at the moment. I mean, if you want to just vent, you, you can, but sorry. Greg is in New Jersey.
3: Hello, Greg. Frank, th- that dork um, that wrote that book on Amelia Earhart what's what's the difference between a dork and a nerd
1: um well that's a good question i really don't know the formal difference um i i was just using the term dork of the week because that's what Jesse Ventura called it do, do they look do they look the same or because i remember
5: animal house that remember that guy who was a dork
1: yeah um I,
3: I i do yeah i do yeah and and then the revenge of the nerds i mean they kind of like they look the same i think the nerds have thicker glasses though. Yeah, I, again,
1: uh, I I think, you know, I didn't I think you're overthinking it slightly, Greg. Uh, I I was just looking for a mild insult that and I thought dork, you know, was appropriate under the circumstances. All right. Hey, Josh is calling from Ukraine. There's our friend Josh that's working with the um the Pataki Center in order to get some aid to the folks there. Hello, Josh. Jo- Josh? Hello, Trent. Hey Frank uh, yeah what's going on over there, Josh? Yes, I'm here actually in uh Ukraine,
6: um, but I was listening to your show as I often do in Ukraine, in Budapest, wherever I am. The time works out much easier here. Oh,
1: I can imagine yeah. we we may we may risk yeah. um you know getting shelled by a Russian mortar in, in exchange for getting to sleep a little later, so uh we can empathize. Yeah, I mean, over
6: here you have the uh, drive-time uh, slot and the mortar-time slot. No, yeah, as,
1: both. as if the Ukrainians weren't punished enough.
6: Right, that's true. So, well, not, not, most of them don't know about you yet, but I'm, I'm sorry. To... <laughs> hey,
1: fair yeah. enough. Um, what do you want to talk about, Josh? So, yeah, you just mentioned
6: before this, the guy who didn't want to come on your show, Um yeah, I just I just had a comment on that, because it reminded me of the uh, Sedition Act of 1918. I don't know if you remember that. <clears throat> Every single member of Congress and Senate, except for one guy, voted to ban all speech that was critical of World War One. The only thing to vote against it was the socialist in Congress, Meyer London. Um, and I just think it's important to remember that there are certain kinds of speech that in a moment in time, the whole nation can get behind saying, hey, we think this shouldn't be said, and you can make a law about it. Um, at the same time, that law was repealed two and a half years later, and almost anybody who was convicted on it was pardoned. So it's just something to uh, consider. Now, again, if dork who won't come on your show, I think that's a little bit silly, but um, it is important once in a while to think, like, what is the line? Like, let's say you had Adolf Hitler on your show. Would I then still want to be on your show? Again, maybe I still would come on your show because there would be a chance for me to say, yo yeah, why the hell are you having Hitler on? But, <clears throat> um, you know, I'm a big believer in engagement, but still, it's just something to think about. Well, I, I it, agree with you, yeah. Josh,
1: um, uh, and I wish we had more time now. I have to actually run, but um, stay safe uh, out there, Josh. And how long are you out there? Do you know?
6: I'm here for another week or so. I just wanted to say one thing about the Ukraine situation yeah. um, that breaks my heart. And that is the American people in Congress again. All of Congress came together, like in 1918. Pretty, uh, you know, unanimous support for Ukraine in the United States. Um, the money was there, nine billion dollars for humanitarian aid. Not a penny has come in here. Um, a lot of it, I think, a billion and a half dollars, two and a half billion went to USAID. They have a contract with a company called Kemonix in Washington D.C. Not a penny has come in to Zakharpatia, the Oblast, I mean, now very little, maybe a few hundred thousand dollars into the uh, Oblast. And I just think if people are calling up their congressmen and people do care about this issue, we got to let the congressman know the money, Ukrainian aid, must go to Ukrainians. Hey, um, it's not, it's, uh,
1: Josh, very quickly, um, if people do want to donate humanitarian aid and the efforts that the Pataki Center is doing, how do they do that? Very quickly, if you can.
6: Um, yes, yeah, if, if you want to go to the Pataki Center, you go to George, uh, you go to you go to GeorgePatakiCenter.com, uh, <clears throat> GeorgePatakiLeadershipCenter.com, and the information about Ukraine is there. But the real issue isn't the few million that we can raise; it's the billions that Congress has committed on behalf of the American people to Ukraine, and people at USAID are spending it on fertilizer for Africa because of the embargo wow. on Russian fertilizer. Wow. Wow. So we just got to think about you know, Ukrainian
1: aid for Ukrainians. Josh, I I, got to run. I have to run. Stay safe. Let's correspond via email. You know how to reach me, and maybe we'll set something up for uh, early next week for a broader update. 15 seconds of fame in just a minute. Uh, Those of you that are on hold, stay on hold, but just try and limit your remarks to 15 seconds. Uh, Two open lines, 800-848-9222. There is no snarkiness penalty, and uh, you can be as snarky as you like for 15 seconds straight ahead. This is indeed the other side of midnight, as you hear Andy B. sending you in there. By the way, I want to remind you, next Thursday, May 19th, I'm going to be appearing at a cigar and cocktails event, which is a fundraiser for uh, a group called Lyrics for Lucas, which aims to put an end to uh, something that's very sad called um, Sudden Unexplained Death in Childhood. And uh, I'm happy to be there uh, with these folks that... Um, you know, trying to put an end to that. So if you want to go to that, it's next um, next Thursday, May 19th at 6 p.m. You can email lyricsforlucas at gmail.com and uh, get all the information necessary there. Uh, it's a great cause, certainly. Uh, lyricsforlucas.org. That's lyricsforlucas.org. Time now for you to be heard for 15 seconds uh, because it's time for
0: other side of midnight this is 15 seconds of fame.
1: fame. mike in new jersey
13: good morning frank frank the convict who escaped with his corrections officer girlfriend was he a svengali or a svenjali
1: he had a cheerful mental hold on her you judge for yourself joe in orange county
11: how you doing frank i just want to let you know you got to get pet insurance for your next pet I spent at least 15000 on my dog that passed away, and they took out the wrong organ. Oh. It was the left kidney. It was the
1: right kidney that they took out. Yeah. Uh, well, my dog died anyway. Oh, uh, that's so God. sad, Joe. Uh, yeah, I want to be very clear. We have pet insurance for two of them, but we couldn't get it for the one that had a pre-existing condition. Jeff is in Elmont.
3: Frank, I have some advice for your
13: wife, Rachel, when she goes on Newsmax. Why we have a shortage of the baby formula. Just blame it on Putin like the administration does with everything else.
1: That's actually very funny. I actually will tell her that. Teddy in Queens.
13: Uh, Dork
19: is a tall nerd. Uh, Groundhog is a land beaver. And Egghead has no personality.
1: Go, Buchanan. Go. Go be- Jim in Brooklyn. You
7: know, I've been with you guys from day one, minute one. And it upsets me when our president has the nerve to conclude his speeches. May God protect our troops. May God protect our troops from him, Austin, Millie. these bunch of creatures.
1: It's Fred and Yonkers.
11: Hey, Frank, the other day I was at the mall. There was a couple on one of the electric staircases at the bottom, hugging and kissing. By the time they got to the top,
3: They were throwing blows and choking
11: each other out. Boy, did that escalate. (laughs) Jeff in Jersey City.
7: Frank, your dumbest interviewer will be Bill O'Reilly. He's still hating on Nixon while he loves the Kennedys. Joe Kennedy was a Nazi sympathizer. He stole millions of dollars from inside trading on the stock market. O'Reilly's a bigot. He calls Eddie
1: in Nassau County.
7: Gaught, Plato, Arada, Necto.
0: Let's go, Brandon.
1: And finally, Phyllis in Brooklyn. Hi, Frank. I'm going to put a link in the Facebook group about hypothyroidism hyperthy- in
20: cats. It uh, sounds like something that uh, you might be interested in related to your cat.
1: Thank you. Uh, stay tuned for the WABC Early News and then the Bernie and Sid Show at 6 with Congressman Peter King coming up. Till tomorrow, Frank Moreno, good day.